to a slightly late live stream from the Cam Projects podcast. Welcome to the Can Projects podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature, and wellness. And I'm your co-host and project coordinator, Shane McKay. And I'm the other co-host and project coordinator, Chris Sneed. And uh, we love to talk about open, inclusive dialogue. And at the moment, we're doing literature. Yeah, and we're live too. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. I hope everybody's keeping well. Um, we've been a wee bit... Um, on a wee bit of downtime uh, the last world, Chris. Yeah. We've been taking it a little bit easy, you know? Yeah, because we did a lot of guests with some really, really great guests in and we've got lots more great guests coming up and you can check it out uh, at our free archives uh, on Spreaker.com, the Can Projects podcast on Spreaker.com. you got free archives over there. Or if you'd like to help support the show, you can become a patron from for one euro a month plus fat on Patreon and you'll get access to ad-free content and early access stuff and today is a great example of some of the stuff um, that you no. kind of get a sneak peek on sometimes uh, so we're, do- we're doing a live reading today that goes out live and it'll be edited down and all of that and enhanced better for our patrons and it'll go up there for a while until we release it at a later day um, okay. segmented um, so but, what you're going to get is an unpolished version. Yeah, live. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be live. Yeah. You know, so I'm really looking forward to it. What have we got today, Chris? Well, we're going to be starting on Ulysses by James Joyce, which is a, it's kind of an iconic book for a number of reasons. But uh, I'm just going to read a bit of the introduction here, yeah? Because uh, there's, a, there's a quote from James Joyce, and it says, I've put in so many enigmas enigmas and puzzles that it will keep professors busy for centuries arguing over what I meant. And that's the only way of ensuring one's immortality. (laughs) Yeah, James Joyce. What What? was that story you were telling me? I know you're going to go through it again later on during the reading, but what what was that? There was some funny thing that happened. Uh, It was banned, was it? It was, it was, it was was banned in America and England as an obscene book. And uh, there's there's a really clever anecdote about how um, they got it unbanned in America because it was a publisher was really desperate to print it, and uh, basically they they got someone to get caught smuggling it, and they had to yo, know, he got the judge to read it to prove it was an obscene book, and when it came back, like the judge was like, yeah, that's a great book, <laughs> you know. So before yeah. we get into it, Chris, uh, we, we, you're going to read the blurb for us before you get backstage and uh, yeah. g- get 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 your read on. 
Um, so I suppose is there anything else now quickly we need to update the audience about um, I suppose there is uh, mm-hmm. oh yeah previously advertised was that the wind and the willows was going to go out today that's why we're actually on live is to explain yeah. that we have it it's ready it's coming out really nicely and thanks to everybody for the support and their encouragement on the wind and the willows it's, we've seen a lot of interest in it and it's one we're really excited about so we've decided to go back and remaster uh, the 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 footage and it's coming out really nice so we decided you know we'll give it we'll give it another wee bit of time in the oven and make sure it's baked thoroughly and yeah, um, we don't want no half baked stories <laughs> so we've actually three stories on the go at the moment I hope that's not too much of a, 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 a but they'll be gradually going out one bit at a time but if you're a patron you'll get much, you'll get a much bigger slice of the story in a go so when we put um, we're going to be putting Wind and the Willows up and that's going to be the first half of the book and it's a three hour reading with advert free for our patrons so uh, you have that to look forward to the time machine I'm loving that Chris I have to say I'm really enjoying yeah. that one yeah yeah I do I do like my HG Wells like I'd, I'd, I'd listen to the top five people that I read. Yeah. yeah. Actually, oh, we, we've got a wee clip to play for you in a minute. But yeah, we're, so that'll be coming again soon. Um, and there's also some other brilliant uh, stories and legends with Chris Need from some of our very, very first early shows that we did. Mm. In fact, I think some of them are not actually on Spreaker. You'll have to go to YouTube. You'll find us on YouTube. The links are in the description if you want to find any of that stuff, as always. Uh, but what did we do? We did some Norse tales. And um, we did a few Celtic ones. We did um, some Irish ghost stories. Uh, God, we did a few different things. It's hard to remember. And, you know. Just the Halloween stuff as well. That That's that's oh, yeah. that's more, there'll be more coming in October for that as well. Um, so tell you what though, how about I play the audience a wee clip, uh, Chris, and you might just double check on the streams while we're doing that. Yeah, I'll have a look on that. Because them. I accidentally forgot to go live on Twitter, but we, 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 hit, we, we, we did hit Twitter. Hi to everyone on Twitter. Hi to everyone on Spreaker. Hi to everyone on YouTube. Hi to everyone on Facebook. Uh, that's it, I think, is it? I'm not leaving anyone out, am I? That's it, I think. No. For today. Um, we will be, we're going to be hitting Twitch soon as well, um, but we're kind, of, we're kind of working that out. Um, so I'm going to get pull up this uh, Wind in the Willows here, Chris. Yeah, and I'll check these things. Now, hopefully... Okay. Hello and welcome back for the sixth part of Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows. So I'll just start off without much further ado. I'm frightfully hungry and I've got any amount to say to Ratty here. Haven't seen him for an age. So the good-natured mole, having cut some slices of ham, set the hedgehogs to fry it and returned to his own breakfast 
while the otter and the rat, their heads together, eagerly talked river shop, which is long shop, and talk that is endlessly running on, like the babbling river itself. A plate of fried ham had just been cleared and sent back for more when the badger entered, yawning and rubbing his eyes, and greeted them all in his quiet, simple way, with kind inquiries for everyone. It must be getting on for luncheon time, he remarked to the otter. Better stop and have it with us. You must be hungry this cold morning. Rather, replied the otter, winking at them all. And there you go. That's the wee snippet. And let me make sure Chris is on. There we go. So I am on. Yeah, they are on. And we're go we're gonna go we're gonna go live with the with the reading soon, Chris, if you're if you're ready. But did you are we gonna do the blur before we take a wee break? Um I give you I give you a bit of James Joyce's life because it's fairly interesting. Oh great, yeah. So James Joyce's Ulysses is a super a supreme literary work. It is a dominant text of modernism modernism being radically experimental difficult, challenging in its technological and linguistic virtuosity. This is pretty technical, this <laughs> linguistic virtuosity. Yeah, we should mention that actually there's Latin and everything in this story. Yeah. I was listening to it earlier. It is astonishing and sometimes baffling, and it is also humorous, humane, and a moving novel. That term novel is convenient, though in its case an understatement, for the work is also an anti-novel fantasia. A compendium, an epic the author called it a kind of encyclopedia. And it can seem autogeneric, one of its kind. A squawking phoenix that could smash its way out of any uh, labelled pigeonhole. You know, so uh, like James Joyce was born in Ratgar in 1882. His father was from a rich family. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And attended Queen's College in Cork, but never graduated. He became a tax collector and then uh, became unemployed and spent all the money and sold all the property. Uh, Jeremy's choice of 10 brothers and sisters. And um, so, like, you know, essentially came from pretty uh, poor background. Mm. What what year was that uh, published, Chris? Do you, know, do you know it offhand? Is it written um, there? Do do 1922 in Paris. Because the French let him get away with oh, that. Oh, 1922. That's that day keeps showing up. Yeah, it does seem to, all right. Yeah. But um, yeah, because the French let him away with it. couldn't be published in Ireland because uh, it was. Hey, do you know what then? It must be It must be the anniversary right about now, actually. Yeah. I That's mean, a nice coincidence. Year, These coincidences Bloom. keep happening around here. Has it been Bloomsday already? Or is that ahead of us? I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, the calendar is so. So messy. Yeah. I haven't seen that mentioned about it. Normally you'd see it on the TVs and, you know, they'd mention it on the radio and stuff. But, um, like, this year's Bloomsday should be uh, pretty big then. Mm. You know? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it must, it must, maybe it's probably, we would have heard if it was kind of, it was yeah. happening already. I think it's in May, actually. So we have another few minutes before we hit the bumpers, Chris. Um, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, I just want to say a big thanks to all the guests that we had last month. We had some great guests and they're mm. going to be back as well coming up soon. Uh, yeah. Some of the guests that we had 
Return, actually, in fact, next month is all returning guests, guys. Okay, we've got like we've got some happy campers coming on to, to talk some more uh, more culture with us. Yeah. And um, yeah, big 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 thanks to everybody, I suppose, um, for all of our all of our support and thanks to our patrons out there and our subscribers yeah. and everybody out there. We're almost at can a year now. The countdown is on to the yeah. one year anniversary, which will be in July, I think. Is that right? Yeah. July, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll spend all our profits on a big blowout party. We might have <laughs> two and a half really expensive coffees. <laughs> yeah. uh, there'd be no cream in that, though. Oh yeah, I suppose we'll have to dip into the emergency fund for cream. <laughs> uh, hey, speaking of jokes, Chris, have you got any good jokes for me today? Um, I, 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 let me rephrase that. Have you got any jokes for me today? Oh, <laughs> oh. Um, I don't know. Um, you have me on the spot now. Give me a topic and I'll pick a joke. <laughs> what's what's uh, what's brown and sticky? A brown stick. Ah, you got me. <laughs> but what's pink and fluffy? Pink fluff. Yes. What's dark and fluffy? Oh, I know, but I'm not going to spoil it. Pink fluff in the dark. <laughs> ah, I th- okay. I thought you were going to say something else. It's probably better I didn't speak, actually, now that I think about it. So never mind about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting over a cough, by the way, guys. Okay. I haven't, be- I have not been well. I didn't have COVID. I don't think. The ant- none of the antigen tests came back as it with a result. But I'm, I'm getting, I'm two weeks getting over a cold. A really, really heavy cold, and it's stoned around. You can probably hear it on me now a little bit. I'm just about over. Luckily, it didn't uh, get on my chest too much. But people are probably starting to say, this is clickbait. Where's James Joyce? Where's Ulysses? So I suppose we should start start getting on with it. Should we, Chris? Yeah, we probably should. Now, it is the Dublin Ulysses, not the one in the future in space. So, you know, anyone hoping for Ulysses 21? It's not happening. (laughs) Yeah, and like we said, you'll be getting you'll be getting seg- segmented, um, probably half hour uh, shots of this. I'm not sure when 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 it'll be going out. The next thing coming out, what it was due to be the Wind and the Willows Part Six, but that so that'll yeah. be coming up soon. We're not really putting a tight time on how often the stuff goes out, but there'll be at, on average maybe two stories a month, maybe more. It could be more. We're, we're going to yeah. see. It's just like trying to fit everything in. Um, but we would like to get them out kind of sooner rather than later. But we're still uh, we're, we're working things out here, really, aren't we, Chris? Yeah, pretty much. We're still fumbling around, are we? Yeah, a wee bit, a wee bit. Hmm. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna. If you want to go back uh, stage, Chris, and I'll, I'll, I'll start. Yeah. I'll take the old headphones off and get ready. Okay, great. Listen, thanks. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks so much. No worries. Uh, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See you later, Chris. Thanks. Longer fall. Now that's Chris gone off backstage and I'm going to get the stuff ready here that I have to do and hopefully when I press this button it's not going to go jing yeah okay that's it guys enjoy bye bye from Can Projects Here at Can, we like to focus on open and inclusive dialogue. For people who are interested in our previous shows, 
you can find our free archives at Spreaker.com at the Can Project Podcast on Spreaker.com or you can also find ad-free content on Patreon.com for as little as one euro a month plus fat. You can help contribute. We do need help, so check us out on either Patreon or Spreaker.com. Are you an artist or creator with a social conscience? Do you have an inspiring story or material to share that's helpful to people? Are you an expert on culture, arts, nature, or wellness? If this sounds like you or someone you know, we'd love to hear from you at Can Projects, where we advocate that active engagement in positive and creative outlets is beneficial to our health and environment. Our talk show Can Projects podcast reaches 20 plus online platforms and features insightful, inspiring, and expert guests. You can check out the show on our free archives on Spreaker.com and YouTube. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel very welcome to email us at canprojects.info at gmail.com. Help each other. Help us all. going to be starting with this live stream a brand new book it's going to be Ulysses by James Joyce now it was a very controversial book in its time there may be one or two things in it that are not terribly suitable for younger viewers but um, I, doubt, I doubt they'll be interested in this book you know uh, there's an interesting story actually about it being banned in America and there was a publisher in America really wanted to publish the book. So what he did was he hired someone to try and get caught smuggling a copy into America. So the plan was to get caught. But when you're, when the guy arrived in the port, um, security was just waving everyone through. And he literally had to go up and go, like, check my bag. There's something in there that you don't want me having. So, uh, just adjust this camera. So, yeah. So, he got arrested for smuggling the book in because it was an obscene book. And his, the, his, the way they were defending him was, well, how can you say it's an obscene book if you haven't read it, Your Honour? So, the judge had to read it and then declared that was a very good book and he really enjoyed it. So, um it got published in America because it was officially judged not to be an obscene book. So, Ulysses, James Joyce. James Joyce's astounding masterpiece, Ulysses, tells of the diverse events which befall Leopold Bloom and Stephen Daedalus in Dublin on 16th June 1904, during which Bloom's voluptuous wife, Molly, commits adultery. Initially deemed obscene in England and the USA, this richly elusive novel revolutionary in its modernizing modernistic experimentalism was hailed as a work of genius by W.B. Yeats, T.S. Eliot and Ernest Hemingway. So we will get into it. 
stately, plump buck mill. Mil- oh, this is the thing about live stuff. <coughs> stately, plump buck mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned, Introlliable ad alter day. Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called up coarsely, Come up, Kinch. Come up, you fearful Jesuit. Solemnly he came forward and mounted the round gun rest. He faced about and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding country, and the awakening mountains. Then, catching sight of Stephen Daedalus, he bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air, gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Daedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him. Equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like pale oak. Buck Mulligan peeped an instant under the mirror and then covered the bowl smartly. Back to barracks, he said sternly. He added in a preacher's tone. For this, O oh dearly beloved, is the genuine Christine body and soul and blood and ounce. Slow music, please. Shut your eyes, gents. One moment. Let the trouble about those white corpuscles silence all. He peered sideways up and gave a long, low whistle of call, then paused a while in rapt attention, his even white teeth glistening here and there with gold points. Christomos. Two strong shrill whistles answered through the calm. Thanks, old chap, he cried briskly. That'll do nicely. Switch off the current, will you? He skipped off the gun rest and looked gravely at the wa- at his watcher, gathering about his legs the loose folds of his gown. The plump, shadowed face and sullen oval jowl recalled a prelate, patron of the arts in the Middle Ages. A pleasant smile broke quietly over his lips. The mockery of it, he said gaily. Your absurd name, an ancient Greek. He pointed his finger in friendly jest and went over to the paraffit, laughing to himself. Stephen Daedalus stepped up, followed him wearily halfway and sat down on the edge of the gun rest, watching him still as he propped his mirror on the paraffit, dipped a brush in the bowl and lathered his cheeks and neck. Buck Mulligan's gay voice went on. My name is an absurd one too. Malachi Mulligan. Two dactyls. But it has a Hellenic ring, hasn't it? Tripping and sunny like the book himself. We must go to Athens. Will you come if I can get the aunt to fork over twenty quid? He laid the brush aside and laughed with delight. And cried, Will he come? The jejun Jesuit? Ceasing, he began to shave himself with care. Tell me, Mulligan, Stephen said quietly. Yes, my love. 
How long is Haynes going to stay in this tower? Buck Mulligan showed a shaven cheek over his right shoulder. God, isn't he dreadful, he said frankly. A ponderous Saxon. He thinks you're not a gentleman. God, these bloody English. Bursting with money and indignation. Because he comes from Oxford, you know. Daedalus, you have the real Oxford manner. He can't make you out. Oh, my name for you is the best. Kinch, the knife blade. He shaved warily over his chin. He was raving all night about a black panther, Stephen said. Where is his gun case? A woeful lunatic, Mulligan said. Were you in a funk? I was, Stephen said, with energy and growing fear. Out here in the dark with a man I don't know raving and moaning to himself about shooting a black panther. You saved me. F- you saved men from drowning. I'm not a hero, however. If he stays on here, I am off. Buck Mulligan frowned at the ladder on his razor blade. He hopped down from his per- perch and began to search his trouser pockets hastily. Scutter, he cried tickly. He came over to the gun rest and thrusting a hand into Stephen's upper pocket said, Lend us a loan of your nose rag to wipe my razor. Stephen suffered him to pull out and hold up on show by its corner a dirty crumpled handkerchief. Buck Mulligan wiped the razor blade neatly. Then gazing over the handkerchief he said, The bard's nose rag, a new art colour for our Irish poets, snot green. You can almost taste it, can't you? He mounted to the parapet again, parapet, again, and gazed out over Dublin Bay, his fair oak-pale hair stirring slightly. God, he said quietly, isn't the sea what algae calls it, a grey sweet mother? The snot-green sea? The scrotum-tightening sea? Epi Onwapa Pontoon Ah, Daedalus the Greeks. I must teach you. You must read them in the original. Talata, Talata, she is our great sweet mother. Come and look. Stephen stood up and went over to the parapet. Leaning on it, he looked down on the water and on the mail boat clearing the harbour mouth of Kingston. Our mighty mother, Buck Mulligan said. He turned abruptly from his searching eyes. He turned abruptly his great searching eyes from the sea to Stephen's face. The aunt thinks you killed your mother, he said. That's why she won't let me have anything to do with you. Someone killed her, Stephen said gloomily. You could have knelt down, damn it. Kinch, when your dying mother asked you, Buck Milligan said. I'm a hyperborean as much as you. But to think of your mother begging you with her last breath to kneel down and pray for her. And you refused. There is something sinister in you. You broke off and laughed and lathered again. (laughs) He broke off and lathered again lightly his farther cheek. A tolerant smile curled his lips. But a lovely murmur, he murmured to himself. 
Kinch, the loveliest murmurer of all. He shaved evenly and with care, in silence, seriously. Stephen, an elbow rested on the jagged granite, leaned his palm against his brow and gazed at the fraying edge of his shiny black coat sleeve. Pain, that was not yet the pain of love, fretted his heart silently. In a dream, she had come to him after her death. Her wasted body within its loose brown grave clothes, giving off an odour of wax and rosewood. Her breaths had been bent upon him, mute, reproachful, a faint odour of wetted ashes. Across the treadbare cuffedridge, cuffage, he saw the sea held as a great sweet mother by the well-fed voice beside him. The ring of bay and skyline held a dull green mass of liquid. A bowl of white china had stood beside her deathbed, holding the green sluggish bile which she had torn up from her rotting liver by fits of loud groaning and vomiting. Buck Mulligan wiped again at his razor blade. Ah, the poor dog's body, he said in a kind voice. I must give you a shirt and a few nose rags. How are the second-hand breeks? They fit well enough, Stephen answered. Buck Mulligan attached... Buck Mulligan attacked the hollow beneath his underlip. The mockery of it, he said contentedly. The mockery of it, he said contentedly. Second leg they should be. God knows what poxy bowsy left them off. I have a lovely pair with a hair stripe grey. You look spiffing in them. I'm not joking, Kinch. You look damn well when you're dressed. Thanks, Stephen said. I can't wear them if they are grey. He can't wear them, Buck Mulligan told his face in the mirror. Etiquette is etiquette. His mo- He kills his mother, but he can't wear grey trousers. He folded his razor neatly, and with stroking palps of his fingers felt the smooth skin. Stephen turned his gaze from the sea and to the plump face with its smoke-blue mobile eyes. That fellow is wit in the ship last night, said Buck Mulligan. Says you have a GPI. He's up in Dottyville with Conley Norman, general of paralysis of the insane. He swept the mirror in a half circle into the air to flash the tidings abroad in sunlight now radiant on the sea. His curling shaven lips laughed and the edges of his white glittering teeth laughed. Laughter seized all of his strong, well-knit trunk. Look at yourself, he said, you dreadful bard. Stephen bent forward and peered at the mirror held out to him, cleft by a crooked crack hair on end, as he and the others see me. Who chose this face for me? This dog's body of rid to rid of vermin? It asks me too. I pinched it out of the skivvy's room, Buck Mulligan said. It does her all right. The aunt always keeps plain-looking servants for Malachi. Lead him not into temptation. And her name is... We'll take a break just now. We'll be back with more from the Calm Projects podcast after these short messages. 
here at Can, we like to focus on open and inclusive dialogue and sometimes a bit of literature as well. So Chris, we're gonna we're we're opening up a new chapter in the readings, the classic stories for Chris Needs. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna be starting on the time machine, which is a classic, classic HG Wells novel. It's a classic for a reason as well, because it's really, really good. I love it. It's been made into a film a few times, and uh, sometimes musicals, audio dramas. Chris Need Classic Readings. My sound man, Shane McKay, has his business called MacSoundServices.com. That's M-A-C-K SoundServices.com. What he does for me is I send him my shows and he, he does audio enhancements and stuff like that. He does miracles if you see some of the stuff I send him and how it comes back. So get a hold of Shane at MacSoundServices.com. M-A-C-K SoundServices.com. You're all very welcome back to the Can Projects podcast. Welcome back. So we'll continue on from where we left off. Well, as close to it as we can find quickly. Who chose this face for me? This dog's body to rid of vermin. It asks me too. I pinched it out of the skivvies room, Buck Mulligan said. It does her all right. The ant keeps plain-looking servants for Malachi. Lead him not into temptation. And her name is Ursula. Laughing again, he brought the mirror away from Stephen's peering eyes. The rage of Caliban at not seeing his face in the mirror, he said. If Wilde were only alive to see you. Drawing back and pointing, Stephen said with bitterness. Is it a symbol of Irish art? The cracked looking glass of a servant? Buck Mulligan suddenly linked his arm in Stephen's and walked with him round the tower. His razor and mirror clacking in the pocket where he had trust. The ra- his razor and mirror clacking in the pocket where he had trust them. It's not fair to tease you like that, Kinch, is it? He said kindly. God knows you have more spirit than any of them. Parried again. He fears the lancet of my art as I fear that of his, the cold steel pen. Cracked looking glass of a servant. Tell that to the oxy chap downstairs and touch him for a guinea. He's stinking with money and thinks you're not a gentleman. His old fellow made his tin by selling jalap to Zulus or some bloody swindler or other. God, Kinch. If you and I could only work together, we might do something for the islands. Hellenize it. Cranley's arm. His arm. And to think of you having to beg from these swine. I'm the only one who knows what you are. Why don't you trust me more? What have you up your nose against me? Is it Haynes? If he makes any noise here, I'll bring down Seymour. And we'll have him a ragging horse. I'll bring down Seymour and we'll have him a ragging worse than they gave Clive Kempthorpe. Young shouts of moneyed voices in Clive's in Clive Kentorp's rooms. 
Pale-faced, they hold their ribs with laughter, one clasping another. Oh, I shall expire. Bring the news to her gently, Aubrey. I shall die. With slit ribbons of his shirt whipping the air, he hops and hobbles round the table. With trousers down at heels, chased by aids of Magdalene. With the tailor's shears, a sacred calf's face gilded with marmalade. I don't want to be debagged. Don't you play the giddy ox with me. Shouts from the open window, startling evening. Shouts from the open window, startling, startling evening in the quadrangle. A deaf gardener, aproned, masked with Matthew Arnold's face, pushes his mower on the sombre lawn, watching narrowly the dancing motes of grass helms. To ourselves, new paganism, umphalos. Let him stay, Stephen said. There's nothing wrong with him except at night. Then what is it? Buck Mulligan asked impatiently. Cough it up. I'm quite frank with you. What have you against me now? They halted looking towards the blunt cape of Bray Head that lay on the water like the shout of a sleeping whale. Stephen freed his arm quietly. Do you wish me to tell you? he asked. Yes, what is it? Buck Mulligan answered. I don't remember anything. He looked on Stephen's fa- he looked in Stephen's face as he spoke. A light wind passed his brow, fanning softly his fair uncombed hair and stirring silver points of anxiety in his eyes. Stephen, depressed by his own voice, said, "Do you remember the first day I went to your house after my mother's death?" Buck Mulligan frowned quietly and said, "What? Where?" I can't remember anything. I remember only ideas and sensations. Why, what happened in the name of God? You were making tea, Stephen said, and I went across to the landing to get more hot water. Your mother and some visitor came out of the drawing room. She asked you who was in your room. Yes, Buck Mulligan said. What did I say? I forget. You said Stephen answered. You said Stephen answered, oh, it's only Daedalus, whose mother is beastly dead. A flush which made him seem younger and more engaging rose to Buck Mulligan's cheek. Did I say that? he asked. Well, what's the harm in that? He shook his constraint from him nervously. And what is death? he asked. Your mother or yours or my own? You only saw your mother die. I see them pop off every day in the matter and Richmond and cut up into tripes in the dissecting rooms. It's a beastly thing and nothing else. It simply doesn't matter. You wouldn't kneel down to pray for your mother on her deathbed when she asked you. Why? Because you have the cursed Jesuit strain in use. Only it's injected the wrong way. To me it's all a mockery and beastly. Her cerebral lobes are not functioning. She calls the doctor St. Peter. Teasel and picks buttercups off the quilt. Humour her till it's over. You crossed her last wish in debt. And yet you sulk with me because I don't whinge like some hired mute from La Lutz. Absurd. I suppose I did say it. I didn't mean to offend the memory of your mother. 
He had spoken himself into boldness. Stephen shielded the gaping wounds which the words had left in his heart. She said very coldly, Sorry. He had spoken himself into boldness. Stephen shielding the gaping wounds with which the words had left in his heart said very coldly, I am not thinking of the offence to my mother. Of what then, Buck Mulligan asked. Of the offence to me, Stephen answered. Buck Mulligan swung round on his heel. Oh, the impossible person, he exclaimed. He walked off quickly round the parapet. Stephen stood at his post, gazing over the calm sea towards the headland. Sea and headland now grew dim. Pulses were beating in his eyes veiling their sight and he felt a fever on his cheeks a voice within the tower called loudly are you up there mulligan i'm coming buck mulligan answered he turned towards stephen and said look at the sea what does it care about offenses chuck leola kinch and come on down the sasnock wants his morning rashers his head halted again for a moment at the top of the staircases level with the roof don't mope over it all day he said i'm inconsequent give up the moody brooding his head vanished but the drone of his descending voice boomed out of the staircase and no more turn aside and brood upon love's bitter misery for fergus rules the brazen cars Wood shadows floated silently by through the morning peace from the stairhead seaward where he gazed. Inshore and further out, the mirror of water whitened, spurned by light-shod hurrying feet. White breast of the dim sea, the twinning stresses two by two, a hand plucking the harp string, merging their twinning chords. Or merging their twining chords. Wave-white wedded words shimmered on the dim tide. A cloud began to cover the sun slowly, shadowing the bay in deeper green. It lay behind him, a bowl of bitter waters. Fergus's song, I sang it, alone in the house, holding down the long dark chords. Her door was open. She wanted to hear my music. Silent with awe and pity, I went to her bedside. She was crying in her wretched bed for those words, Stephen. Love's bitter misery. Where now? Her secrets, old feather fans, tasseled dance cards, powdered with musk, a god of amber beads in her locked drawer. A birdcage hung in the sunny window of her house when she was a girl. She heard old Royce sing in the pantomime of Turco. The terrible... She heard old Royce sing in the pantomime of Turco the Terrible and laughed when others sang, which he sang. I am the boy that can enjoy invisibility. Phantasmal mirth folded away, musk perfumed, and no more turn aside and brood. Folded away in the memory of nature with her toys, memories beset his brooding brain. Her glass of water from the kitchen tap when she had approached the sacrament. A cored apple filled with brown sugar, roasting for her at the hob on a dark autumn evening. Her shapely fingernails reddened by the blood of squashes of squashed lice. 
from the children's shirts. Her shapely fingernails reddened by the blood of squashed lice from the children's shirts. In a dream, silently, she had come to him, her wasted body within its loose grave clothes giving off an odour of wax and rosewood. Her breath bent over him with more, with mute secret words, a faint odour of wetted ashes, her glazing eyes staring out of death to shake and bend my soul on me alone. The ghost candle to light her agony, ghostly light on the tortured face, her hoarse loud breath rattling in horror, while all prayed on their knees, her eyes on, to me, on me to strike me down. Liat Sorry, pronunciations. <clears throat> Liliata Rotalium Te Confessorium Turma Circumdet Eublatarium Te Virginium Chorus Excipiat Ghoul Chewer of Corpses no, mother, let me be and let me live. Kinch ahoy! Buck Mulligan's voice sang from within the tower. It came near up the staircase calling again. Stephen, still trembling at his soul's cry, heard warm running sunlight and in the air behind him friendly words. Daedalus, come down like a good mosey. Breakfast is ready. Haynes is apologising for waking us last night. It's all right. I'm coming, Stephen said, turning. Do for Jesus' sake, Buck Mulligan said, for my sake and for all our sakes. His head disappeared and reappeared. I told him your symbol of Irish art. He says it's very clever. Touch them for a quid, will you? A guinea, I mean. I get paid this morning, Stephen said. The school kip, Buck Mulligan said. How much for four quid? Lend us one. If you want it, Stephen said. Four shining sovereigns. Buck Mulligan cried with delight. You'll have a glorious drunk to astonish the druidry druids. Four shining sovereigns, Buck Mulligan cried with delight. We'll have a glorious drunk to astonish the druidy druids. Four omnipotent, omnipotent sovereigns. He flung up his hands and tramped down the stone stairs, singing out of tune with a cockney accent. Oh, won't we have a merry time, drinking whiskey, beer and wine? On Coronation, Coronation Day. Oh, won't we have a merry time on Coronation Day? Warm sunshine merrying over the sea. The nickel shaving bowl shone, forgotten on the paraffin. Why should I bring it down? Or leave it there all day, forgotten friendship? He went over to it, held it in his hands a while, feeling its coolness, smelling the clammy slaver of the lather in which the brush was stuck. So I carried the boat of incense, then at Clongowns. I am another now, and yet the same, a servant too, a servant of a servant. In the gloomy, domed living room, of in the gloomy, domed living room of the tower, Buck Mulligan groaned for... <sighs> Sorry. On the plus side, I'm not shouting out expletives. In the gloomy, 
domed living room of the tower, Buck Mulligan's gowned form. Well, we'll take a break there for the moment. And I'll be back in a second. We'll be back with more from the Cam Projects podcast after these short messages. Are you an artist or a creator with a social conscience? Are you an expert on culture, arts, nature or wellness? We would love to hear from you at CAM Projects, where we advocate active engagement in positive and creative outlets is beneficial to our health and environment. Our talk show, CAM Projects Podcast, reaches 20 online platforms and features insightful, inspiring and expert guests feel very welcome to email us at canprojects.info at gmail.com For people who are interested in our previous shows you can find our free archives at spreaker.com at the Can Projects podcast on spreaker.com You can also find ad-free content on patreon.com You can help contribute We do need help so check us out on patreon or spreaker.com You're all very welcome back to the Can Projects podcast. Now, welcome back. Where was I? A servant of a servant. In the gloomy domed living room of the tower, Buck Mulligan gowned for, Buck Mulligan's gowned form moved, brisk, moved briskly about the heart to and fro. Hiding and reveling its yellow glow. Uh. Chris, get with it. In the gloomy, domed living room of the tower, Buck Mulligan's gowned form moved briskly about the heart to and fro, hiding and revealing its yellow glow. Two shafts of soft daylight fell across the flagged floor. From the high barbitions and at the meeting of their rays, a cloud of coal smoke and fumes of fried grease floated, turning. We'll be choked, Buck Mulligan said. Haynes, open the door, will you? Stephen laid, Stephen laid the shaving bowl on the locker. A tall figure rose from the hammock where it had been sitting, went to the doorway and pulled open the inner doors. Have you the key? a voice asked. Daedalus has it, Buck Mulligan said. Janie Mack, I'm choked, he held without looking up from the fire. Kinch, it's in the lock, Stephen said, coming forward. The key scraped round harshly twice, and when the door had been set ajar, welcome light and bright air entered. Haynes stood at the doorway, looking out. Stephen hailed his upended valise to the table and sat down to wait. Buck Mulligan tossed a fry onto the dish beside him. Then he carried the dish and a large teapot over to the table, set them down heavily the table inside and sat down to wait. Buck Mulligan tossed a fry melting, onto he said, the dish as the candles marked. Then he carried the dish and a large teapot over to the table, set them down heavily the table that subject. inside. Kinch, wake up. Bread, butter, honey, Haynes, come in. The grub is ready. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. Where's the sugar? Oh, Jay, there's no milk. Stephen fetched the loaf and the pot of honey and the butter cooler. From the locker. 
Buck Mulligan sat down in a sudden pet. What sort of kip is this, he said. I told her to come after eight. We can drink it black, Stephen said. There's a lemon in the locker. Oh, damn you and your Paris fads, Buck Mulligan said. I want Sandy Cove milk. Haynes came in from the doorway and said quietly, The woman is coming up with the milk. The blessings of God on you, Buck Mulligan cried, jumping up from his chair. Sit down, pour out the tea there. Sugar is in the bag. Here, I can't go fumbling at the damned eggs. He hacked through the fry on the dish and slapped it out on three plates, saying, In nomine patris et filili et spiritus sancti. Sancti, yes, sancti. In nomine patris et filii et spiritus sancti. Haines sat down to pour the tea. I'm giving you two lumps each, he said. But I say, Mulligan, you do make strong tea, don't you? Buck Mulligan's hewing... Buck Mulligan, hewing thick slices from the loaf, said in an old woman's wheeling voice, When I make tea, I make tea, as old mother George Grogan said. And when I makes water, I makes water. By Jove, it is tea, Hain said. Buck Mulligan went on hewing and wheedling. So I do, Miss Cahill, says she. Be old, my ma, says Miss Cahill. God send you, don't make them in the one pot. <laughs> Uh, God send you don't make them in the one pot he lunged towards his messmates in turn a thick slice of bread impaled on his knife that's folks he said very earnestly for your book Haynes five lines of text and ten pages of notes about the folk and the fish gods of Dundrum printed by the weird sisters in the year of the big wind he turned to Stephen and asked it in a fine puzzled voice lifting his brows can you recall brother is mother Grogan's tea and water pot spoken of in the Mabinogion or is it in the Upanshids I doubt it said Stephen gravely do you know Buck Mulligan said in the same tone your reasons pray I fancy Stephen said as he ate it did not it did not exist in or out of the Mabinogion. Mother Grogan was one of was one imagines, a kinswoman of Marianne. Buck Mulligan's face smiled with light. Charming, he said in a final sweetie voice, showing his white teeth and blinking his eyes pleasantly. Do you think she was? Quite charming. Then suddenly overclouding all his features, he growled in a hoarse and rasping voice as he hewed another slice of bread vigorously from the loaf. For old Marianne, she doesn't care a damn, but hissing up her petticoats, he crammed his mouth with fry and munched and droned. The doorway was darkened by an entering form. The milk, sir. Come in, ma'am, Mulligan said. Kinch, get the jug. An old woman came forward and stood by Stephen's elbow. That's a lovely morning, sir, she said. Glory be to God. To whom? Mulligan said, glancing at her. Ah, to be sure. 
Stephen reached back and took the milk jug from the locker. The Islanders, Mulligan said, Haynes casually. <clears throat> Stephen reached back and took the milk jug from the locker. The Islanders, Mulligan said to Haynes casually, speak frequently of the collector of prepuces. How much, sir? asked the woman. A quart, Stephen said. He watched her pour into the measure and thence into the jug rich white milk. Not hers, old shrunken paps. She poured again a measureful and a tilly. Old and secret, she had entered from a morning world, maybe a messenger. She praised the goodness of the milk, pouring it out. Crouching by a potion, by a patient cow at daybreak in the lush field, a witch on her toadstool, her wrinkled fingers quick at the squirting dogs. They lowed about her, whom they knew, do, do silky cattle, silk of the kind, and the poor old woman, names given her in old times, a wandering crown, lowly form of an immortal serving her conqueror. A wandering crown, low, lowly form of an immortal serving her conqueror and her gay betrayer, their common cook queen, a messenger from the secret morning, to serve or to upbraid, whether he could not tell, but scorned to beg her favour. It is indeed, ma'am, Buck Mulligan said, pouring milk into their cups. Taste it, sir, she said. He drank at her bidding. If only we could live on good food like that, he said to her somewhat loudly, we wouldn't have the country full of rotten teeth and rotting guts. Living in a bog swamp, eating cheap food, and the streets paved with dust, horse dung, and consumptive spits. Are you a medical student, sir? said the old woman. I am, ma'am, Buck Mulligan answered. Stephen listened in scornful silence. She bowed her... She bowed her uh, Stephen listened in scornful silence. She bows her head to a voice that speaks to her loudly. Her bone setter, her medicine man. Me she slights, to the voice that will shrive and oil for the grave all there is of her. But the woman's unclean loins of man's flesh, made not in God's likeness, the serpent's prey, and to the loud voice that now bids her be silent with wandering unsteady eyes do you understand what he says Stephen asked her is it French you are talking sir the old woman said to Haynes Haynes spoke to her again a longer speech confidently Irish Buck Mulligan said is there Gaelic on you I thought it was Irish she said by the sound of it are you from the west sir I am an Englishman Haynes answered He's English, Buck Mulligan said, and he thinks we ought to speak Irish in Ireland. Sure we ought to, the old woman said, and I'm ashamed I don't speak the language myself. I'm told it's a grand language by them that knows. Grand is no name for it, said Buck Mulligan. Wonderful, entirely to... Wonderful entirely. Fill us out some more tea, Kinch. Would you like a cup, ma'am? No, thank you, sir, said the old woman slipping the ring of the milk can on her forearm and about to go out. Haynes said to her, Have your bill. We had better pay her, Mulligan. 
Hadn't we? Stephen filled the three cups. Bill, sir, she said, halting. Well, it's seven mornings a pint at twopence is seven twos is a shilling and twopence over and these three mornings a quart at fourpence is three quarts and a shilling. And one and two is two and two, sir. Buck Mulligan sighed and having filled his mouth with a crust thickly buttered on both sides stretched forth his legs and began to search his trouser pockets. Pay up and look pleasant, Haynes said to him, smiling. Stephen filled a third cup, a spoonful of tea coloured faintly in the thick, rich milk. Buck Mulligan brought up a florin, twisted it round his fingers and cried, A miracle! He passed along the table towards the old woman, saying, Ask nothing more of me, sweet. All I can give you, I give. Stephen laid the coin in her uneager hand. We'll owe one twopence, he said. Time enough, sir, she said, taking the coin. Time enough. Good morning, sir. She curtsied and went out, followed by Buck Mulligan's tender chant. Heart of my heart, where more. More would be laid at your feet. He turned to Stephen and said, Seriously, Daedalus, I'm stony. Hurry out to get your skip school kip and bring us back some money. Today the birds must drink and junk it. Ireland, Ireland accepts... Ireland expects that every man to this day will do his duty. That reminds me, Haynes said, rising, that I have to visit your National Library today. Our swim first, Buck Mulligan said. He turned to Stephen and asked blandly, Is this the day for your monthly wash, Kinch? Then he said to Haynes, The unclean bard makes a point of washing once a month. All Ireland is washed by the Gulf Stream, Stephen said as he let honey trickle over a slice of the loaf. Haynes from the corner where he was knotting easily a scarf about the loose collar of his tennis shirt spoke. I intend to make a collection of your sayings if you will let me. Speaking to me, they wash the tub and scrub. Adjumbite of inwit. Conscience. Yet, here's a spot. That one about the cracked looking glass of a servant being the symbol of Irish art is a deuce good. Buck Mulligan kicked Stephen's foot on the table and said with want of tome, Wait till you hear him on Hamlet, Haynes. Well, I mean it, Haynes said, still speaking to Stephen. I was just thinking of it when that poor old creature came in. Would I make money by it, Stephen asked. Haynes laughed and took his soft grey hat from the hold fast of the hammock and said I don't know I'm sure he strolled out the doorway Buck Mulligan bent across to Stephen and said with coarse vigour you put your hoof in it now what did you say that for well Stephen said the problem is to get money from whom from the milk woman or from him it's a toss up I think I blow him out about you Buck Mulligan said and then you come along with your lousy leer and your gloomy Jesuit jibes. I see little hope, Stephen said. From her or from him? Buck Mulligan sighed tragically and laid his hand on Stephen's arm. From me, Kinch, he said. In a sudden changed tone, he added. To tell you God's truth, I think you're right. Damn all else they are good for. Why don't you play them as I do? To hell with them all. Let us get out of this kip.
He stood up gravely ungirdled and disrobed himself of his gown, saying resignedly, Mulligan is stripped of his garments. He emptied his pockets on the table. There's your snot rag, he said, and putting his stiff collar and rebellious tie, he spoke to him, chiding them, and to his detangling watch chain. His hands plunged and rummaged in his trunk while he called out for a clean handkerchief. Agenbite of Inwit. God. We'll be back with more from the Cam Projects podcast after these short messages. Here at Can, we like to focus on open and inclusive dialogue and sometimes a bit of literature as well. So, Chris, we're going to, we're, we're opening up a new chapter in the readings, the classic stories for Chris Needs. Yeah, we're going to be starting on The Time Machine, which is a classic, classic H.G. Wells novel. It's a classic for a reason as well, because it's really, really good. I love it. It's been made into a film a few times and uh, sometimes musicals, audio dramas. Chris Sneed, Classic Readings. My sound man, Shane McKay, has his business called MacSoundServices.com. That's M-A-C-K, SoundServices.com. What he does for me is I send him my shows, and he, he does audio enhancements and stuff like that. He does miracles if you see some of the stuff I send him and how it comes back. So get a hold of Shane at MacSoundServices.com. M-A-C-K SoundServices.com. You're all very welcome back to the Can Projects podcast. Buck Mulligan sighed tragically and laid his hand on Stephen's arm. For me, Kinch, he said. In a sudden change of tone, he added, To tell you God, the God's truth, I think you're right. Damn all else they are good for. Why don't you play them as I do? To hell with them all. Let's, let us get out of this kip. That, that seems like a good spot for another break. Because I need to uh, wet my mouth and uh, give a cough. You know, I'll be back in a second. <laughs> <clears throat> Chris, we already had the ads. You're gonna have. I hope that's water you're drinking, is it? Yeah. Ah. I see little hope, Stephen said. From her or from him? Buck Mulligan sighed tragically and laid his hands on Stephen's arm. From me, Kinch, he said. In a suddenly changed tone, he added. To tell you God's truth, I think you're right. Damn all else they are good for. Why don't you play them as I do? To hell with them all. Let us get out of this kip. He stood up, gravely ungirdled and disrobed himself of gowns, saying resignedly, Mulligan is stripped of his garments. Mulligan is stripped of his garments. He emptied his pockets onto the table. There's your snot rag, he said. And putting on his stiff collar and rebellious tie, he spoke to them, chiding them, and to his dangling watch and his dangling watch chain. His hands plunged and rummaged in his trunk, while he called for a clean handkerchief. Agenbite of Inwit. God, we simply have to dress the character. I want puce gloves and green boots. Contradiction. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. 
Mercurial Malachi. A, a limp black missile flew out of his talking hands. And there's your Latin Quarter hat, he said. Stephen picked it up and put it on. Haynes called to them from the doorway. Are you coming, you fellows? I'm ready, Buck Mulligan answered, going towards the door. Come out, Kinch. You have eaten all we left, I suppose. Resigned, he passed out with grave words and gait, saying well nigh with sorrow. And going forth, he met Butterly. Stephen, taking his ash plant from its leaning place, followed them out and, as they went down the ladder, pulled to a slow iron, pulled to the slow iron door and locked it. He put the huge key in his inner pocket. At the foot of the ladder, Buck Mulligan asked, Did you bring the key? I have it, Stephen said, preceding them. He walked on. Behind him, he heard Buck Mulligan club with his heavy bat towel the leader shoots of fern and grass. Down, sir, how dare you? Haynes asked. Do you pay rent for this tower? Twelve quid, Buck Mulligan said. To the Secretary of State for war, Stephen added over his shoulder. They halted while Haynes surveyed the tower and said at last, rather bleak in wintertime, I should say. Martello, you call it? Billy Pitt had them built, Buck Mulligan said, when the French were on the sea. But ours is the... Billy Pitt had them built, Buck Mulligan said, when the French were on the sea. But ours is the Amphalos. What is your idea of Hamlet? Haynes asked Stephen. No, no, Buck Mulligan shouted in pain. I'm not equal to Thomas Aquinas and the 55 reasons he has made to prop it up. Wait till I have a few points of me first. He turned to Stephen, saying, as he pulled down neatly the peaks of his primrose waistcoat, You couldn't manage it under three points, Kinch, could you? It has waited so long, Stephen said listlessly. It can wait longer. You pique my curiosity, Haynes, said amiably. You pique my curiosity, Haynes said amiably. Is it some pardon? <laughs> See, this is getting close to where I have to stop. And I'm sorry, but like, this is how the sausage is made, you know? <laughs> you don't want to know how the sausage is made. Right. <clears throat> it has waited so long, Stephen said listlessly. It can wait longer. You pique my curiosity, Haynes said amiably. Is it some paradox? Pooh, Buck Mulligan said. We have grown out of wild and par- paradoxes. It's quite simple. He proves by algebra that Hamlet's, Hamlet's grandson is Shakespeare's grandfather and that he himself is the ghost of his own father. What? Haynes said, beginning to point at Stephen. He himself? Buck Mulligan slung his towel stolewise round his neck, and bending in loose laughter said to Stephen's ear, O shade of Kinch the Elder, Jafat in search of his father. We're always tired in the morning, Stephen said to Haynes, and it is rather long to tell. Buck Mulligan walked forward again, raising his hands. 
The sacred pint alone can unbind the tongue of Daedalus, he said. I mean to say, Haynes explained to Stephen as they followed this tower. And these cliffs here remind me of so- me somehow. Ugh. The sacred pint alone can unbind the tongue of Daedalus, he said. I mean to say, Haynes explained to Stephen as they followed. This tower and these cliffs here remind me somehow of Elsinore. That beetles o'er his base into the sea, isn't it? Buck Mulligan turned suddenly for an instant towards Stephen, but did not speak. In the bright silent instant, Stephen saw his own image in cheap dusty morning between their gay attires. It is a wonderful tale, Haynes said, bringing them to a halt again. Eyes pale as the sea, the wind had freshened paler, firm and prudent. The sea's ruler, he gazed southward over the bay, empty save for the smoke plume of the mailboat, vague on the bright skyline, and a sail tacking by the muglins. I read a theological interpretation of it somewhere, he said, bemused. The father and the son idea, the son striving to be atoned with the father. Buck Mulligan at once put on a blithe, broadly smiling face. He looked at them, his well-shaped mouth open happily, his eyes from which he had suddenly withdrawn all shrewd sense, blinking with mad gaiety. He moved the doll's head to and fro, the brims of his Panama hat quivering, and began to chant in a quiet, happy, foolish voice. I am the queerest young fellow that you ever heard. My mother's a Jew, my father's a bird. With Joseph the joiner, I cannot agree. So here's to disciples and cavalry. He held up a forefinger of warning. If anyone thinks that I am divine, he'll get no free drinks when I'm making the wine. But to have but have to drink water and wish it were plain, then I make... <sighs> right, I'm going to jump back to the beginning of that one. If anyone thinks that I am divine, he'll get no free, free drinks when I'm making the wine, but have to drink water and wish it were plain, that I make when the wine becomes water again. <laughs> he capered before them down towards the 40 foot hole fluttering his wing like hands leaping nimbly Mercury's hat quivering in the fresh wind that bore back to them his brief bird like cries Haynes who had been laughing guardedly walked on beside Stephen and said we oughtn't to laugh I suppose he's rather blasphemous I'm not a believer myself, that is to say. Still, his gaiety takes the harm out of it somehow, doesn't it? What did he call it? Joseph the Joiner? The Ballad of Joking Jesus, Stephen answered. Oh, Haynes said. You have heard it before. Three times a day after meals, Stephen said dryly. You're not a believer, are you? Haynes asked. I mean, a believer in the narrow sense of the word. Creation from nothing and miracles and a personal God. There's only one sense of the word, it seems to me, Stephen said. Haynes stopped to take out a smooth silver case in which twinkled a green stone. 
He sprang it open with his thumb and offered it. Thank you, Stephen said, taking a cigarette. Haynes helped himself and snapped the case too. He put it back in his side pocket and took from his waistcoat a nickel tinderbox, sprang it open too, and having lit his cigarette, held a flaming spunk toward... <laughs> he put it back in his side pocket and took from his waistcoat pocket a nickel tinderbox, sprang it open too, and having lit his cigarette, held a flaming spunk toward Stephen in the shell of his hands. Yes, of course, he said as they went on again. Either you believe or you don't, isn't it? Personally, I couldn't stomach the idea of a personal god. You don't stand for that, I suppose. You behold... You behold in me, Stephen, said... You behold in me, Stephen said, with a grim displeasure, a horrible example of free thought. He walked on, waiting to be spoken to, trailing his ash plant by his side. Its ferrule followed lightly on the path, squealing at his heels. My familiar after me calling, Stephen! A wavering line along the path. They will walk on it tonight. Coming here in the dark. He wants that key. It is mine. I paid the rent. Now I eat his salt bread. Give him the key too. All he will ask for it. That was in his eyes. After all, Haynes began. Stephen turned and saw that the cold lay. Stephen turned. <laughs> That was in his eyes. After all, Haynes began. Stephen turned and saw that the cold gaze which he had measured him was not all unkind. After all, I should think you are able to free yourself. You are your own master, it seems to me. I am the servant of two masters, Stephen said. An English and an Italian. Italian, Haynes said. A crazy queen, old and jealous, kneeled down before me. And a third, Stephen said. There is who wants for me odd jobs. Italian, hear me? Haynes said again. What do you mean? The Imperial British State, Stephen answered, his colour rising, and the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostle Church. Haynes detached from his underlip some fibres of tobacco before he spoke. I can quite understand that, he said calmly. An Irishman must think like that, I dare say. We feel in England that we have treated you rather unfairly. It seems history is to blame. The proud, potent titles change up. It seems history is to blame. The proud, potent titles clanged over Stephen's memory. The triumph of their brazen bells. Et unam sanctum. Catholican et Aspiltician Ecclesian. The slow growth and change and of right and dogma like his own rare thoughts. A chemistry of stars. Symbol of the apostles in the mass for, for the Pope. Marcellus. The voice blended, singing alone, loud in aff- affirmation. And behind their chant, the vigilant angel of the church, militant, disarmed and menacing her, 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 
The voices blended, singing alone in loud affirmation, and behind the chant, the vigilant angel of the church, militant, disarmed and menacing her heresiarch, a horde of heresies fleeing with Mistress Arai, Photius and the brood of mockers of whom Mulligan was one, and Arius, warring his life long upon the constabulary of the son with the father, and Valentine spurning Christ's terrene body, and the subtle African heresiac Sableus, who held that the father was himself his own son. Words Mulligan had spoken in a moment since in mockery to the stranger, idle mockery. The void awaits surely all them that weave the wind, a menace, a disarming and a worsening from the from those embattled angels of the church, Michael's host, who defend her ever in the hour of conflict with their lances and their shields. Hear, hear, prolong the pause. Zut nom de Dio. Of course I'm a Britisher, Haynes. The void awaits surely all them that weave the wind. A menace, a disarming and worsening from those embattled angels of church, Michael's host, who defend her ever in the hour of conflict with their lances and their shields. Hear, hear, prolonged applause. Zut nom de du. Of course my British or Haynes voice said, and I feel as one. I don't want to see my country fall into the hands of Germans, Jews either. That's our national problem, I'm afraid, just now. Two men stood at the verge of a cliff, watching businessman, boatman. Well, I think I best leave it there at that. Whew. That was a bit of a tough one. What were you going? What, 20 pages in? You know? Well. Talk to you again. Bye now. And the Can Project's email is canprojects.info at gmail.com and you'll find a link to the Cam Project's website in the description. All the best. Projects Culture, Arts, Nature and Wellness is an outreach project advocating that active engagement in positive and creative outlets is beneficial to our health and our environment. If you'd like to contact CAN Projects, you can email us at canprojects.info at gmail.com and the link to our website is in the description.
Are you super interested in shizcoin and get totally excited by pyramid programs? Do you feel ready to give your money to a faceless stranger on a pinky promise of endless returns? Then this is not the podcast for you. Here at Can, we like to focus on open and inclusive dialogue and sometimes a bit of literature as well. We're opening up a new chapter in the readings today, the classic stories for Chris Needs. Yeah, we're going to be starting on The Time Machine, which is a classic, classic H.G. Wells novel. It's a classic for a reason as well, because it's really, really good. I love it. It's been made into a film a few times. There was a few other titles you mentioned to me, Chris, that you're a big fan of. What else is it that he's done? The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, which is my favourite of them. Yeah, so that's actually, like, lots of his stuff was made into movies then. Mm. And uh, sometimes musicals, audio dramas... Chris Need Classic Readings. Hello, and welcome to The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. So let us begin. Chapter 1, Introduction. The time traveller, for so it will be convenient to speak of him, was expounding a recondite matter to us. His grey eyes shone and twinkled and his usually pale face was flushed and animated. The fire burnt brightly, and the soft radiance of the incandescent lights in the lilies of silver caught the bubbles that flashed and passed in our glasses. Achers, being his patents, embraced and caressed us rather than submitted to be set upon. And there was that luxurious after-dinner atmosphere when thoughts run gracefully free of the trammels of precision. And he put it to us in this way, making the points with a lean finger, as we sat and lazily admired his earnestness over this new paradox, as we taught it, and his fecundancy. You must follow me carefully. I shall have to controvert one or two ideas that are almost universally accepted. The geometry, for instance, they taught you at school, is founded on a misconception. Is not that rather a large thing to expect us to begin upon? Said Philby, an argumentative person with red hair. I I do not mean to ask you to accept anything without reasonable ground for it. You will soon admit as much as I need from you. You know, of course, that a mathematical line, a line of thickness of nil, has no real existence. They taught you that. Neither has a mathematical plane. These things are mere abstractions. That is all right, said the psychologist. Nor having only length, breadth, and thickness, can a cube have a real existence? There are objects, said Philby. Of course a solid body may exist. All real things... So most people think. But wait a moment. Can an instantaneous cube exist? Don't follow you, said Philby. Can a cube that does not last for any time at all have a real existence? Philby became pensive. Clearly, the time traveller proceeded. Any real body must have an extension in four directions. It must have length, breadth, thickness, and duration. But though a natural infirmity of the flesh 
which I will explain to you in a moment, we incline to overlook this fact. There are really four dimensions, three which we call the three planes of space, and a fourth, time. Time has, however, a tendency to draw an unreal distinction between the former three dimensions and the latter. Because it happens that our consciousness moves intermittently in one direction along the latter from the beginning to the end of our lives. That, said a very young man, making spasmodic efforts to relight his cigar over the lamp. That, very clear indeed. Now it is very remarkable that this is so extensively overlooked, continued the time traveller with a slight accession of cheerfulness. Really, this is what is meant by the fourth dimension, though some people who talk about the fourth dimension do not know they mean it. It is only another way of looking at time. There is no difference between time and, say, any of the three dimensions of space, except that our consciousness moves along it. But some foolish people have got hold of the wrong side of the idea. You have all heard what they have to say about this fourth dimension. I have not, said the provincial mayor. It is simply this, that space, as our mathematicians have it, is spoken of as having three dimensions, which one may call length, breadth and thickness, and is always definable by reference to three planes, each at right angles to each other's. But some philosophical people have been asking why three dimensions particularly? Why not another direction at right angles to the other three? And have they even tried to construct a four-dimensional geometry? Professor Simon Newcomb was expounding this to the New York Mathematical Society only a month or so ago. You know how on a flat surface, which has only two dimensions, we can represent a figure of three-dimensional solid. Similarly, they think that by models of three dimensions, they could represent one of four. If they could master the perspective of the thing, see? I think so, murmured the provincial mayor. And knitting his brows, he lapsed into an introspective state, his lips moving as one who repeats mystic words. Yes, I think I see it now, he said after some time, brightening in a quite transitory manner. Well, I do not mind telling you, I have been at work upon the ge this geometry of four dimensions for some time. Some of my results are curious. For instance, here is a portrait of a man at eight years old, another at fifteen, another at seventeen, another at twenty-three, and so on. All these are evidently sections, as it were, three-dimensional representations of his four-dimension being, which is a fixed and unalterable thing. Scientific people, proceeded the time-traveller, after the pause required for proper assimilation of this, know very well that time is only a kind of space. Here is a popular scientific diagram, a weather record. This line I trace with my finger shows the movement of the barometer. Yesterday it was so high. Yesterday night it fell. Then this morning it rose again. And so gently upwards 
to here. Surely the Mercury did not trace this line in any of the dimensions of space generally recognized. But certainly it traced such a line, and that line, therefore, we must conclude, was along the time dimension. But, said the medical man, staring hard at a coal in the fire, if time is really only a fourth dimension of space, why is it, and why has it always been, regarded as something different? And why cannot we move about in time as we move about in the other dimensions of space? The time traveller smiled. Are you sure we can move freely in space? Right and left we can go, backwards and forwards freely enough, and men have always done so. I admit we move freely in two dimensions, but how about up and down? Gravitation limits us there. Not exactly, said the medical man. There are balloons. But before the balloons, save for the spasmodic jump, jumping and inequalities of the surface, men had no freedom of vertical movement. Still, they could move a little up and a little down, said the medical man. Easier, far easier down than up. And you cannot move at all in time. You cannot get away from the present moment. My dear sir, that is just where you are wrong. That is just where the whole world has gone wrong. We are always getting away from the present moment. Our mental existence, which are immaterial and have no dimensions, are passing along the time dimension with a uniform velocity from the cradle to the grave. Just as we should travel down if we began our existence 50 miles above the Earth's surface. But the great difficulty is this, interrupted the psychologist. You can move about in all directions of space, but you cannot move about in time. That is the germ of my great discovery. But you are wrong to say we cannot move about in time. For instance, if I am recalling an instant very vividly, I go back to the instant of its occurrence. I become absent-minded, as you say, and I jump back for a moment. Of course, we have no means of staying back for any length of time, or any more than a savage or an animal has of staying six feet above the ground. But a civilized man is better off than the average savage in this respect. He can go up against gravitation in a bloom, and why should he not hope to ult that ultimately he may be able to stop or accelerate his drift along the time dimension, or even turn about and travel the other way. Oh, this, began Philby, is all. Why not? Said the time traveller. It's against reason, said Philby. What reason, said the time traveller? You can show black is white by argument, said Philby, but you will never convince me. Possibly not said the time-traveller. But now you begin to see the object of my investigation into the geometry of four dimensions. Long ago, I had a vague inkling of a machine. To travel through time, exclaimed the very young man, that shall travel indifferently in any direction of space and time as the driver determines. Philby contented, contented himself with laughter. But I have experimental verification, said the time-traveller. It would be remarkably convenient for the historian, the psychologist suggested. One might travel back and verify 
the accepted account of the Battle of Hastings, for instance. Do you think you would attract attention? said the medical man. Our ancestors had no great tolerance for anachronisms. One might get one's Greek from the very lips of Homer and Plato, the young man thought. In which case they would certainly plough you for the little go. The German scholars have improved Greek so much. Then there is the future, said the very young man. Just think, one might invest all one's money, leave it to accumulate that interest, and hurry on ahead. To discover a society, said I, erected on a strictly communistic basis. Of all the wild extravagant theories, began the psychologist. So it seems to me, and so I never talked of it until... Experimental verification, cried I. You're going to verify that. The experiment, cried Philby, who was getting brain-weary. Let's see your experiment anyhow, said the psychologist. Though it's all humbug, you know. The time-traveller smiled round at us, then still smiling faintly, with his hands deep in his trouser pockets, he walked slowly out of the room. We heard the slipper shuffling down the long passage to his laboratory. The psychologist looked at us. I wonder what he's got. Some sleight of hand trick or another, said the medical man, and Philby tried to tell us about a, a conjurer he had seen at Bur Burslim. But before he had finished his preface, the time-traveller came back, and Philby's anecdote collapsed. Chapter 2. The Machine The thing the time-traveller held in his hand was a glittering metallic framework, scarcely larger than a small clock and very delicately made. There was ivory in it and some transparent crystalline substance. And now I must be explicit, for this that follows, unless his explanation is to be accepted, is an absolutely unaccountable thing. He took one of the small octagonal tables that were scattered about the room and set it in front of the fire, with two legs on the hearth rug, and, this table he on the, and on this table he placed the mechanism. Then he drew up a chair and sat down. The only other object on the table was a small shaded lamp, the bright light of which fell full upon the model. There were also perhaps a dozen candles about two in brass candlesticks upon the mantel, and several in sconces, so that the room was brilliantly illuminated. I sat in a low armchair, nearest the fire, and I drew this forward so as to be almost between the time-traveller and the fireplace. Philby sat behind him, looking over his shoulder. The medical man and the provincial mayor watched him in profile from the right, the psychologist from the left. The very young man stood behind the psychologist. We're all on alert. It appears incredible to me that any kind of trick, however subtly conceived and however adroitly done, could have been played upon us under these conditions. The time traveller looked at us and then at the mechanism. Well, said the psychologist, this little affair, said the time-traveller, resting his elbows upon the table and pressing his hands together above the apparatus, is only a model. It is my plan for a machine to travel through time. 
you'll notice that it looks singularly askew and that there is an odd twinkling appearance about this bar, as though it was in some way unreal. He pointed to the part with his finger. Also here is one little white lever, and here another. The medical man got up out of his chair and peered into the thing. It is beautifully made, he said. It took two years to make, retorted the time traveller. Then, when we had all imitated the action of the medical man, he said, Now I want you to clearly understand that this lever being pressed over here sends the machine gliding into the future, and the other reverses this motion. This saddle represents a seat, the seat of the time traveller. Presently I am going to press the lever, and off the machine will go. It will vanish past into the future time and disappear. Have a good look at the thing. Look at the table too. Satisfy yourself. There is no trickery. I don't want to waste this model and then be told I am a quack. There was a minute's pause, perhaps. The psychologist seemed about to speak to me, but changed his mind. Then the time traveller put forth his finger towards the lever. No, he said suddenly, lend me your hand. And turning to the psychologist, he took that individual's hand in his own and told him to put out his forefinger. So that it was the psychologist himself who set forth the model time machine on its interminable voyage. We all saw the lever turn. I am absolutely certain there was no trickery. There was a breath of wind and the lamp flame jumped. One of the candles on the mantel was blown out and the little machine suddenly swung round, became indistinct, was seen as a ghost, for a second perhaps, as an eddy, and then faintly glittering brass and ivory, and it was gone, vanished. Save for the lamp, the table was bare. Everyone was silent for a minute. Then Phil, then Philby said he was damned. The psychologist recovered from his stupor, and suddenly looked under the table at the time-traveller and laughed cheerfully. Well, he said, with a reminiscence of the psychologist. Then, getting up, he went to the tobacco jar on the mantel, and with his back to us began to fill his pipe. We stared at each other. Look here, said the medical man. Are you in earnest about this? Do you seriously believe that that machine has travelled into time? Certainly, said the time traveller, stooping to light a spill at the fire. Then he turned, lighted his pipe, to look at the psychologist's face. The psychologist, to show that he was not unhinged, helped himself to a cigar and tried to light it uncut. What is more, I have a big machine nearly finished in there, he indicated the laboratory. And we, when it is put together, I mean to have a journey on my own account. You mean to say that the machine has travelled into the future, said Philby. Into the future or the past, I don't know for certain. I don't know which. After an interval, the psychologist had an inspiration. It must have gone to the past. If it has gone anywhere, he said. Why? asked the time traveller because I presume that it is not moved in space. And if it has travelled into the future, it would still be here all the time. 
since it must have traveled through time. But, said I, if it has traveled into the past, it would have been visible when we came first into this room, and last Thursday when we were here, and the Thursday before that, and so forth. Serious objections remarked the provincial mayor, with nerve impartiality, turning towards the time traveller. Not a bit, said the time traveller. And to the psychologist, you think you can explain that? It's presentation below the threshold. You know, diluted presentation. Of course, said the psychologist, and reassured us. That's a simple point in psychology. I should have thought of it. It's plain enough and helps the paradox delightfully. We cannot see it, nor can we appreciate this machine any more than we can the spoke of a wheel spinning or a bullet flying through the air. If it is travelling through time fifty times or a hundred times faster than we are, if it gets through a minute while we get through a second, the impression it creates will of course be only one fiftieth or one hundredth of what it would make if it were not travelling in time. That's plain enough. He passed his hand through the space in which the machine had been. You see, he said laughing. We sat and stared at the vacant table for a minute or so. Then the time traveller asked us what we all thought of it. It sounds plausible enough tonight, said the medical man, but wait till tomorrow. Wait for the common sense of the morning. Would you like to see the time machine itself, asked the time traveller. And therewith, taking the lamp in his hand, he led the way down the hall, down the long, drafty corridor, to his lab laboratory. I remember vividly the flickering light, his queer broad head and silhouette, the dance of the shadows, how we all followed him, puzzled but incredulous. And how there in the laboratory we beheld a larger edition of the little mechanism, which we had seen vanish before our eyes. Parts were of nickel, parts of ivory. Parts had certainly been filed or sawn out of rock crystal. The thing was generally complete, but the twisted crystalline bars lay unfinished upon the bench, besides some sheets of drawings, and I took up one for a better look at it. Quartz, it seemed to be. Look here, said the medical man. Are you perfectly serious, or is this a trick? Like that ghost you showed us last Christmas. Upon that machine, said the time traveller, holding the lamp aloft, I intend to explore time. Is that plain? I was never more serious in my life. None of us quite know how to take it. I caught Philby's eye over the shoulder of the medical man, and he winked at me solemnly. Chapter 3 The Time Traveller Returns I think that at the time none of us quite believed in the time machine. The fact is the time traveller was one of those men who are too clever to be believed. You never felt that you saw all round him. You always suspected some subtle reserve, some ingenuity in ambush. Behind his lucid frankness, had Philby shown the model and explained the matter in the time traveller's words, we should have shown him far less scepticism, for we should have perceived his motives. A pork butcher could understand Philby, but a time traveller has more than a touch of whim among his elements, and we distrusted him. 
Things that would have made the fame of a less clever man seem tricks in his hand. It is a mistake to do things too easily. The serious people who took him seriously never quelt, never felt quite sure of his deportment. They were somehow aware that trusting their reputation for judgment with him was like furnishing a nursery with eggshell china. <laughs> so I don't think any of us said very much about the time traveller. Or about time travelling in the interval between that Thursday and the next. Though its odd potentialities ran no doubt in most of our minds, its plausibility, that is, its practical incredibleness, the curious possibilities of anachronism, and of utter confusion it suggested. For my own part, I was particularly preoccupied with the trick with the model. That I remember discussing with the medical man whom I met on Friday at Linian. He said he had seen a similar thing at Tubgen and laid considerable stress on the blowing out of the candle. But how the trick was done, he could not explain. The next Thursday, I went again to Richmond. I suppose I was one of the time traveller's most constant guests, and arriving late, found four or five men already assembled in his drawing room. The medical man was standing before the fire, with a sheet of paper in one hand and his watch in the other. I looked round for the time traveller, and... It's half past seven now, said the medical man. I suppose we'd better have dinner. Whereas, said I, naming our host, you've just come, it's rather odd, he's unavoidably detained. He asked me in this note to lead off with dinner at seven if he's not back. He says he'll explain when he comes. It seems a pity to let dinner spoil, said the editor of a well-known daily paper, and thereupon the doctor rang the bell. The psychologist was the only person besides the doctor and myself who had attended the previous dinner. The other men were Blank, the editor of aforementioned, a certain journalist, and another, a quiet, shy man with a beard, whom I don't know, and didn't know, and who, as far as my observations went, never opened his mouth all evening. There was some speculation at the dinner table about the time traveller's absence, and I suggest... I suggested time-travelling in a half-jocular spirit. The editor wanted, wanted that explained to him, and the psychologist volunteered a wooden account of the ingenious paradox and trick which, he, which we had witnessed the day, next, the day last week. He was in the midst of his explanation when the door from the corridor opened, slowly and without noise. I was facing the door, and I saw it first. Hello, I said at last. And the door opened wider, and the time traveller stood before us. I gave a cry of surprise. Good heavens, man, what's the matter? cried the medical man, who saw him next. And the whole tableful turned towards the door. He was in an amazing plight. His coat was dirty and dusty, and smeared with green down the sleeves his hair disordered, and it seemed to me greyer, either with dust and dirt or because its colour had actually faded. His face was ghastly pale, his chin had a brown cut, cut on it, a cut half healed, his expression was haggard and drawn, as by intense suffering. 
For a moment he hesitated in the doorway, as if he had been dazzled by the light. Then he came into the room. He walked with just such a limp as I have seen in footsore tramps. We stared at him in silence, expecting him to speak. He said not a word, but came painfully to the table, and made a motion towards the wine. The editor filled a glass of champagne and pushed it towards him. He drained it, and it seemed to do him good. For he looked round the table, and the ghost of his old smile flickered across his face. What on earth have you been up to, man? said the doctor. The time traveller did not seem to hear. Don't let me disturb you, he said, with a certain faltering, faltering articulation. I'm all right, he stopped. Held out the glass for more, and took it off at a draught. That's good, he said. His eyes grew brighter, and a faint colour came back into his cheeks. His glance flickered over our faces with a certain dull approval, and he went round the warm and com comfortable room. Then he spoke again, still, as it were, feeling his way among the words. I'm going to wash and dress, and then I'll come down and explain things. Save me some of that mutton. I'm starving for a bit of meat. He looked across at the editor, who was a rare visitor, and hoped he was all right. The editor began a question. Tell you presently, said the time traveller. I'm funny. Be all right in a minute. He put down his glass and walked towards the staircase door. Again I remarked his lameness and the soft padding sound of his footfall. And standing up in my place, I saw his feet as he went out. He had nothing on them but a pair of tattered, blood-stained stocks. Then the door closed upon him. I had half a mind to follow, till I remember how he detested any fuss about himself. For a minute, perhaps, my mind was wool-gathering. Then, remarkable behaviour of an eminent scientist, I heard the editor say, thinking after his want, in headlines. And this brought my attention back to the bright dinner table. What's the game? said the journalist. He had been doing the amateur cadger. I don't follow. I met the eye of the psychologist and read my own interpretation in his face. I thought of the time traveller limping painfully upstairs. I don't think anyone else had noticed his lameness. The first to recover completely from this surprise was the medical man, who rang the bell. The time traveller hated to have servants waiting at dinner for a hot plate. At that the editor turned to his knife and fork with a grunt, and the silent man, man followed suit. The dinner was resumed. Conversation was exclamatory for a while, little while, with gaps of wonderment, and then the editor got fervent in his curiosity. Does our friend eke out his modest income with a crossing? Or has he the nebonizer phase? He inquired. I feel assured it's that this business of the time machine, I said, and took up the psychologist's account of our previous meeting. The new guests were frankly incredulous. The editor raised objections. What was this time travelling? A man couldn't cover himself with dust by rolling in a paradox, could he? And then, as the idea came home to him, he resorted to caricature.
Hadn't they any clothes brushes in the future? The journalist, too, would not believe at any price, and joined the editor in the easy work of heaping ridicule on the whole thing. They were both the new kind of journalist, very joyous, irreverent young men. Our special correspondent in the day after tomorrow reports, the journalist was saying, or rather shouting, when the time traveller came back, who was dressed in ordinary evening clothes, and nothing save his haggard look remained of the change that had startled me. I say, said the editor, hilariously, these chaps here say you have been travelling into the middle of next week. Tell us all about Little Roseberry, will you? What will you take for the lot? The time traveller came to the place reserved for him. Without a word, he smiled quietly in his old way. Where's my mutton, he said. What a treat to stick a fork into meat again. Story, cried the editor. Story be damned, said the time traveller. I want something to eat. I won't say a word until I get some peptone into me arteries. Thanks, and the salt. One word, said I. Have you been time travelling? Yes, said the time traveller, with his mouth full, nodding his head. I'd give a shilling a line for ver- for a verbatim note, said the editor. The time traveller pushed his glass towards the silent man, and rang it with his fingernail, at which the silent man, who had been staring at his face, started convulsively and poured him wine. The rest of the dinner was uncomfortable. For my own part, sudden questions kept on rising to my lips, and I dare say it was the same with the others. The journalist tried to leave the tension by telling anecdotes of Hetty Potter. The time traveller devoted his attention to his dinner and displayed the appetites of a tramp. The medical man smoked a cigarette and watched the time traveller through his eyelashes. The silent man seemed even more clumsy than usual and drank champagne with regularity and determination out of sheer nervousness. At last, the time traveller pushed his plate away and looked round us. I suppose I must apologise, he said. I was simply starving. I've had a most amazing time. He reached out his hand for a cigar and cut the end. But come into the smoking room. It's too long a story to tell over greasy plates. And ringing the bell in passing, he led the way into the adjoining room. You have told Blank and Dash and chose about the machine, he said to me, leaning back in his easy chair and naming the three new guests. But the thing's a mere paradox, said the editor. I can't argue tonight. I don't mind telling you the story, but I can't argue. I will, he went on, tell you the story of what happened to me, if you like, but you must refrain from interruptions. I want to tell it badly. Most of it will sound like lying. So be it. It's true. Every word of it. All the same. I was in my laboratory at four o'clock, and since then I've lived eight days. Such days as no human being ever lived before. I'm nearly worn out, but I shan't sleep till I've told this thing over to you. Then I shall go to bed, but no interruptions. Is it agreed? Agreed, said the editor, and the rest of us echoed agreed. And with that the time traveller began his story, as I have said it fought. He sat back in his chair at first, and spoke like a weary man. Afterwards he got more animated, 
In writing it down, I feel with only too much keenness the inadequacy of pen and ink, and above all my own inadequacy to express its quality. You read, I will suppose, attentively enough, but you cannot see the speaker's white, sincere face in the bright circle of lamplight, nor hear the intonation of his voice. You cannot know how his expression followed the turns of his story. Most of us hearers were in shadow, for the candles in the smoking room had not been lighted. The only fa- and only the face of the journalist and the legs of the silent man from the knees downwards were, inlu- were illuminated. At first we glanced now and again at each other. After a time we ceased to do that and looked only at the time traveller's face. Well, I suppose we'll be leaving it at that. It's been my pleasure to read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells for the Cannes Projects. And I look forward to talking to you again. Slang for the carja. And the Cannes Projects email is cannesprojects.info at gmail.com and you'll find a link to the Cam Projects website in the description. All the best. Projects podcast where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature, and wellness. And you'll find us on Spreaker.com or you'll also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, and the usual spots. You also find us on Twitter at Can Projects One. If you'd like to email Can Projects, you can do so at Can Projects dot info at gmail.com and remember if you can help us all help each other and you're all very welcome back to the can projects podcast how are you doing chris I'm all right. It took a few clicks to get the uh, mute button unmuted. Oh, yeah. It was stubbornly staying red. So any plans, Chris, coming up um, over the next few weeks or for the new year? Mostly getting things ready. I mean, there's a lot of kind of prep work to do on things. If we're planning on doing some more crafty stuff, I have to get my craft space set up for recording and things and backdrops and things set up for doing stories and things. Make it more uh, character-driven, if you will. Great. And yourself? Yeah, I'm going to start playing a bit more clarinet again, a bit more music. Um, yeah. Probably might do try and do a bit of busking. Um, oh, yeah, that's on the cards, are right? Yeah. Yeah, because got, things seem to be going a bit more positively. 
yeah, I'm gonna, I gotta, I gotta get the license uh, sorted out. But um, were you saying something about uh, some balloon modelling ideas you had? Oh yeah, yeah. I want to start doing. Um, I'm gonna do a series of instructional videos and kind of work on some bigger sculptures, probably in time lapse or whatever. You know, right, great. Because uh, the big stuff takes a while. <laughs> what like hours or? I mean, I did one that took me like 14 hours before. Oh. But that was a replica model of a Harley Davidson to scale and various other things. Wow. And what, did you break uh, that up like into a couple of different sessions or did you do it all in? I did a lot. Of, I did drink an awful lot of coffee. And uh, <laughs> you see, balloons are a very temporary medium. Right. They don't, they last, they last a few days. So if you want something done, it has to, you have to kind of get it done, if you yeah, will. Okay. Wow. 14 yeah. hours. Yeah. Now, it wouldn't have been so bad, but that was when I learned the static electricity does build up and isn't good for balloons. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, I forgot to discharge the static hey. and blew right. up a hell of a lot of balloons. <laughs> yeah, because there would, there would be, there'd be a way to do that, wouldn't there? Yeah, yeah, you just touch anything that's airted to discharge your static. Like, Isn't there, isn't there, isn't there, there's like a... Um, there's a little tool that you get when uh, for when you're mounting uh, like CPUs into motherboards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a touchpad thing. Right. Or... Yeah. Great. Well, look, you I'm can... really, I'm really looking forward to that now. So, do you know what? I, I just realised we did promise on the last show that we were going to do a reading, and we ran over time. I had to cut us I, off. Yeah, I actually have the book still in my hand. Yeah. Great. <laughs> the Wind and the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Chapter One: The Riverbank. The mole had been working very hard all morning, spring-cleaning his little home, first with brooms, then with dusters, then on ladders and steps and chairs, with a brush and a pail of whitewash, till he had dust in his throat and his eyes and splashes of whitewash all over his black fur, and an aching back and weary arms. Spring was moving in the air above and in the earth below and around him, penetrating even his dark and lowly little house with its spirits of divine discontent and longing. It was small wonder then that he suddenly flew down, out, uh, that he suddenly flung down his brush on the floor and said, bother, and oh blow, and also hang spring cleaning, and he bolted out of the house without even waiting to put on his coat. Something up above him was calling him, imperiously, and he made for the steep little tunnel which answered in his case to a gravelled carriage driven, to a gravelled carriage drive owned by animals whose residents are nearer to the sun and the air. So he scraped and he scratched and he scrabbled and he scrooged. And then he scrooged again, and he scrabbled and he scratched and he scraped, working busily with his little paws, muttering to himself, up we go, up we go, till at last pop. His snout came out into the sunlight, and he found himself rolling in the warm grass of a great meadow. This is fine, he said to himself. This is better than whitewashing. The sunshine struck hot on his fur. Soft breezes caressed his heated brow, and after the seclusion of the cellarage he had lived in so long, the carol of happy birds fell upon his dulled hearing almost like a shout. Jumping off all four legs at once, in the joy of living and the delight of spring without its cleaning, 
he pursued his way across the meadow till he reached the hedge. On the further side, Hold up, said an, old, an elderly rabbit at the gap. Sixpence for the privilege of passing by this private road. He bowled over in an instant. He was bowled over in an instant by the impatient and contemptuous mole, who trotted along the side of the hedge, chaffing the other rabbits as they peeped hurriedly from their holes to see what the row was about. Onion sauce, onion sauce, he remarked jeeringly, and was gone before they could think of a, a thoroughly satisfactory reply. Then they all started grumbling at each other. How stupid you are! Why didn't you tell him? And so on, in the usual way, but of course it was then much too late, as is always the case. It all seemed too good to be true. Hither and thither, through the meadows, he rambled busily along the hedgerows, across the copse, finding everywhere birds, building, birds, buildings, flowers, budding, leaves, trusting, everything happy and progressive and occupied. And instead of having an uneasy conscience pricking him and whispering, whitewash, he somehow could only feel how jolly it was to be the only idle dog among all the busy citizens. After all, the best part of a holiday is perhaps not so much to be resting yourself as to see all the other fellows busy working. He thought his happiness was complete, when as he meandered aimlessly along, he sudden, suddenly he stood by the edge of a full-fed river. Never in his life had he seen a river before, this sleek, sinuous, full-bodied animal, chasing and chuckling, gripping things with a gurgle and leaving them with a laugh, to fling himself on fresh playmates that shook themselves free and were caught and held again. All was a shake and a shiver, glints and gleams and sparkles, rustle and swirl, chatter and bubble. The mole was bewitched, entranced, fascinated. By the side of the river he trotted, as one trots when very small, by the side of a man who holds one spellbound by exciting stories. When, and, when and when tired at last, he sat on the bank, while the river still chattered on to him. A babbling procession of the best stories in the world sent from the heart of the earth to be told at last to the insatiable sea. As he sat on the grass and looked across the river, a dark hole in the bank opposite, just above the water's edge, caught his eye, and dreamily he fell to considering what a nice snug dwelling place it would make for an animal with few wants and fond of a bayou riverside residence. Above flood level, and remote from noise and dust, as he gazed, something bright and small seemed to twinkle down in the heart of it, vanished and then twinkled once more like a tiny star. But it could hardly be a star in such an unlikely situation, and it was too glittering and small for a glowworm. Then as he looked at it, it winked at him, and so declared itself to be an eye, and a small face began gradually to grow up round it, like a frame round a picture. A little brown face with whiskers, a grave round face, with the same twinkle in its eye that had first attracted his notice. Small neat ears and a thick silky hair. It was the water rat. The two animals stood and regarded each other cautiously. Hello, mole, said the water rat. Hello, rat, 
said the mole. Would you like to come over? inquired the rat presently. Oh, it's all very well to talk, said the mole, rather pettishly. He being a new to the river and riverside life and its ways. The rat said nothing, but stood and unfastened the rope and hauled on it. Then lightly he stepped out into a little boat, which the mole had not observed. It was a painted blue outside and white within, and was just the size for two animals. And the mole's heart went out to it at once, even though he did not yet fully understand its use. The rat sculled smartly across and made fast. Then he held up his forepaw as the mole stepped gingerly down. Lean on that, he said. Now then, step lively. And the mole, to his surprise and rapture, found himself actually seated in the stern of the real boat. This has been a wonderful day, said he as the rat shoved off and took to the skulls again. Do you know, I've never been in a boat before in all my life. What? cried the rat, open-mouthed. Never been in a... You've never... Well, I... What have you been doing then? It, it, is it so nice as all that? asked the mole shyly, though he was quite prepared to believe it as he leant back in the seat and surveyed the cushions and the oars and the rowlocks and all the other fascinating fittings and felt the boat sway, sway lightly under him. Nice? It's the only thing, said the water rat solemnly as he leant forward for his stroke. Believe me, my young friend, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, half worth doing as simply messing about in boats. Simply messing, he went on dreamily. Messing and in boats, messing. Look ahead, rats, cried the mole suddenly. It was too late. The boat struck the bank at full tilt. The dreamer, the joyous oarsman, lay on his back at the bottom of the boat, his heels in the air. About in boats or with boats, the rat went on composedly, picking himself up with a pleasant laugh. In or out of them, it doesn't matter. Nothing seems really to matter, but that's the charm of it. Whether you get away or whether you don't, whether you arrive at your destination or whether you reach somewhere else, or whether you never get anywhere at all. You're always busy and you never do anything in particular, and when you've done it, there's always something else to do. And you can do it if you like. But you'd much better not. Look here. If you've really nothing else on hand this morning, suppose we drop down the river together and have a long day of it. The mole waggled his toes from sheer happiness, spread his chest with a sigh full of contentment and leaned back blissfully into the soft cushions. What a day I'm having, he said. Let us start at once. Hold hard a minute then, said the rat. He looped the painter through the ring in his landing stage, climbed up into his hole above, and after a short interval, reappeared staggering under a fat wicker luncheon basket. Shove that under your feet, he observed to the mole, as he passed it down into the boat. Then he untied the painter and took the skulls again. What's inside? asked the mole, wriggling with curiosity. There's cold chicken inside it, replied the rat briefly. Cold tongue, cold hamlock, beef pickled, herrings, lad, French rolls, cress, sandwiches, spotted spotted meat, gingerbread, limonade, soda, water. Okay, okay, stop, cried the mole in ecstasies. This is too much. Do you really think so? Inquired the rat seriously. 
it's only what I always take on these little excursions. And the other animals are always telling me I'm a mean beast and cut it very fine. The mole never heard a word he said. The mole never heard a word he was saying. Absorbed in the new life he was entering upon, intoxicated with the sparkle and the ripple and the scents and the sounds of the sunlight. He trailed a paw in the water and dreamed long waking dreams. The water rat looked like a good little fellow as he was scuttling, scully, as he was scuttling steadily on the foreboard, on and forbore to disturb him. I like your clothes awfully, chap, old chap, he remarked after some half an hour or so had passed. I'm going to get a black velvet smoking suit myself some day, as soon as I can afford it. I beg your pardon, said the mole, pulling himself with great, with a great effort. You must think me very rude, but all this seems so new to me. So this is a river. The river, corrected the rat. And you really believe, and you really live by the river. What a jolly life. By it, with it, on it, in it, said the rat. It's brother and sister to me, and aunts and company and food and drink and naturally washing. It's my world and I don't want any other. What it hasn't got is not worth having, and what it doesn't know is not worth knowing. Lord, the times we've had together, whether in winter or summer, spring or autumn, it's always good fun in its many excitements. When the floods are on in February and my cellars and basements are brimming with drink, there's no that's no good to me. And the brown water runs by my bedroom window, or again when it all drops away and shows patches of mud that smell like plum cake, and rushes and weeds clog the channels, and I can potter about dry shod over most of the bed of it, and find fresh food to eat, and things careless people have dropped out of boats. But isn't it a bit dull at times? the mole v- ventured to ask. You, just you and the river, and no one else to pass a word with. No one else to. Well, I mustn't be hard on you, said the rat with forbearance. You're new to it, and of course you don't know. The bank is so crowded nowadays that many people are moving away altogether. Oh no, it isn't what it used to be at all. Otters, kingfishers, dab chicks, moorhens, all of them about all day long wanting you to do something as if a fellow had no business of his own to attend to. What lies over there? asked the mole, waving a paw for towards a background of woodland that darkly framed water meadows on one side of the river. That, oh, that's just a wild world, said the rat, shortly. We don't go there very much, we river bankers. Aren't, aren't they very nice people in there? said the mole a trifle nervously. Well, replied the rat, let me see. The squirrels are all right, and the rabbits. Some of them, but rabbits are a mixed lot. And then there's Badger, of course. He lives right in the heart of it. Wouldn't live anywhere else either if you paid him to do it. Dear old Badger, nobody interferes with him. They'd better not, he added significantly. Why, who should interfere with him? asked the Mole. Well, of course there are others, explained the Rat, in a hesitating sort of way. Weasels and stouts and foxes and so on. They're all right in a way. I'm very good friends with them. Pass the time of day when we meet and all that. But they break out sometimes. There's no denying it. And then, well, you can't really trust them. And that's the fact. The mole knew well that it is quite against animal etiquette to dwell on the possible trouble ahead. 
or even to allude to it, so he dropped the subject. And and beyond the wild wood again, he asked, where it's all blue and dim, and one sees what may be hills or perhaps they mayn't, and something like the smoke of a town, or is it only cloud drift? Beyond the wild wood comes the wild, the wide world, said the rat. And that's something that doesn't matter either to you or to me. I've never been there, and I'm never going, nor you either, if you've got any sense at all. Don't even refer to it again, please. Now then, here's our backwater last where we are going to go to lunch. Leaving the main stream, they now passed into what seemed at first like a little landlocked lake. Green turf sloped down to either edge. Brown, snaky tree roots gleamed below the surface of the water. And while ahead of them, the silvery shoulder and foamy tumble of a weir, arm in arm, with a restless dripping mill wheel that held up in its turn, a grey gabbled mill house filled the air with a soothing murmur of sound, dull and smothery, yet with little clear voices speaking up cheerfully out of it at intervals. It was so very beautiful that Mole could only hold up both forepaws and gasp, Oh my, oh my, oh my. The rat brought the boat alongside the bank, made her fast, and helped the still awkward mole safely ashore and swung out the luncheon basket. The mole begged as a favour to be allowed to unpack it all by himself, and the rat was very pleased to indulge and sprawl himself full length on the grass and rest, while his excited friend shook out the tablecloth and spread it. He took out all the mysterious packets one by one, arranged their contents in due order, still gasping, Oh my, oh my, at each fresh revelation. When all was ready, the rat said, Now pitch in, old fellow. And the mole was indeed indeed very glad to obey, for he had started his spring cleaning at a very early hour that morning, as people will do, and had not paused for a bite or sup and he had been through a very great deal since the distant time, which now seemed so many days ago. What are you looking at? said the rat presently, when the edge of their hunger was somewhat dulled, and the mole's eyes were still able to wander off the tablecloth a little. I'm looking, said the mole, at a streak of um, bubbles that I see travelling along the surface of the water. That is a thing that strikes me as funny. Bubbles, oh, said the rat, chirping cheerfully in an inviting sort of way. A broad glistening muzzle showed itself above the edge of the bank, and the otter hauled himself out and shook water from his grey coat. Greedy beggars, he observed, making for the provender. Why didn't you invite me, ratty? This was an impromptu affair, explained the rat. By the way, my friend, Mr. Mole. I'm proud and sure, said the otter, and the two animals were friends forthwith. Such rumpus everywhere, continued the otter. All the world seems out on the river today. I come up this backwater to try and get a moment's peace, and then I stumble upon you, fellows. At least I beg beg pardon. I didn't exactly mean that, you know. There was a rustle behind them, proceeding from a hedge wherein last year's leaves still clung thick, and a stripy head with high shoulders behind it peered forth on them. 
Come on, old badger, shouted the rat. The badger trotted forward a pace or two, then grunted, mm-hmm, Company, and turned his back and disappeared from view. That's just the sort of fellow he is, observed the disappointed rat. Simply hates society. Now we shan't see any more of him today. Well, tell us who's out on the river. Toad's out for one, replied the otter. In his brand new wa- <clears throat> in his brand new wager boat, new togs, new everything. The two animals looked at each other and laughed. Once it was nothing but sailing, said the rat. Then he tired of that and took to punting. No, nothing would please him but to punt all day, every day. A nice mess he made of it last year when it was houseboating. And we all had to go and stay with him in his houseboat and pretend we liked it. He was going to spend the rest of his life in the houseboat. It all, it all the same weather. He takes up, he gets tired of it and starts on something fresh. Such a good fellow too, remarked the otter reflectively. But no stability, especially in a boat. From where they could set, they could see a glimpse of the main stream across the, to the island that separated them. And just then a wager boat flashed into view. The rower, a short, stout figure, splashing badly and rolling a good deal, but working his hardest. The rat stood up and hailed him. But Toad, for it was he, shook his head and settled sternly to his work. He'll be out of that boat in a minute if he rolls like that, said the rat sitting down again. Of course he will, chuckled the otter. Did I ever tell you that good story about Toad's? And the lock keeper happened this way. Toad, an errant mayfly, swerved unsteadily outward the current and in an intoxicated fashion affected by the young blood of mayflies seeing life. A swirl of water and then a clup. And the mayfly was visible no more. Neither was the otter. The mole looked down. The voice was still in his ears. The turf whereupon he had sprawled was clearly vacant. Not an otter to be seen, as far as the distant horizon. But again there was a streak of bubbles on the surface of the river. The rat hummed the tune, and the mole recollected that animal etiquette forbade any sort of comment on the sudden disappearance of one's friends at any moment, for any reason, or for no reason whatsoever. Well, well, said the rat, I suppose we ought to be moving. I wonder which of us has better packed the luncheon basket. He did not speak as if he was frightfully eager for the treat. Oh, please let me, said the mole. So of course the rat let him. Packing the basket was not quite such pleasant work as unpacking the basket. It never is. But the mole was bent on enjoying everything. And although just when he had got the basket packed and strapped up tightly, he saw a plate staring up at him from the grass. And when the job had been done again, the rat pointed out a fork which anybody ought to have seen, at last of all behold the mustard pot, which which he had been sitting on without knowing it. Still, somehow the thing got finished at last, without much lost temper. The afternoon sun was getting low, as the rat sculled gently homewards in a dreamy mood, murmuring poetry things to himself over and over again, and not paying much attention to mole. But the mole was very full of lunch, and self-satisfaction and pride and already quite at home in a boat, so he thought. And he was getting a bit restless besides, and presently he said, Ratty, 
Please, I want to roll now. The rat shook his head with a smile. Not yet, my young friend, he said. Wait till you've had a few lessons. I'm not so e- it's not so easy as it looks. The mole was quiet for a minute or two, but then he began to feel more jealous of rats, sculling so strongly and so easily along, and his pride began to whisper that he could do it every bit as well. I think we'll leave it at that for now. Chris, that was brilliant. Thanks so much. Listen, no problem. Tell you what, would you come Mm -hmm. back and and, and do the next part of that next Wednesday? Yeah. Would you? Yeah, yeah. All right. I'd love that. That would be really brilliant. Um, I'm going to have to find my place because I closed the book without remembering to put a bookmark in it. Oh, no, don't lose this. Don't lose this. (laughs) Okay. Well, listen, guys, thanks again so much. And I'm going to roll the old bumper here now in a moment. And thanks again for joining us on the Calm Projects podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, us email us, 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 us at calmprojects.info at gmail.com. And I've been your host, Shane McKay. And I've been your other host, Chris Versneed, who's using another book as a bookmark because I can't find my bookmark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, keep well. Welcome back to the Calm Projects podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature and wellness. And I'm your host, Shane McKay, and we've got a lovely, lovely show in store for you today with another reading from Chris Sneed. And he's going to continue on to The Wind of the Willows, which is a great classic story, one of my favourites. So I'm just going to check, double check. Chris, are you there? That I am. OK, that great. Am. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll get out of here and I won't heckle, I promise. Ah, go on. <laughs> okay, guys, listen, enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. We'll pick up where we left off. The mole was quiet for a minute or two, but he began to feel more and more jealous of the rats, sculling so strongly and so easily along, and his pride began to whisper that he could do it every bit as well. He jumped up and seized the skulls so suddenly that the rat, who was gazing out over the water, and saying more poetry things to himself, was taken by surprise, and he fell back off his seat with his legs in the air for the second time, while the triumphant mole took his place and grabbed the skulls, 
with entire confidence. Stop it, you silly ass, cried the rat from the bottom of the boat. You can't do it. You'll, you'll have us over. The mole flung his skulls back with a flourish and made a great dig at the water. He missed the surface altogether and his legs flew up above his head and he found himself lying on top of the prostrate rat. Greatly alarmed, he made a grab at the side of the boat and the next moment, splush, over went the boat and he found himself struggling in the river. Oh my, how cold the water was and how very wet it felt. How it sang in his ears as he went down, down, down. How bright and welcome the sun looked as he rose to the surface, coughing and sputtering. How black was his despair when he felt himself sinking again. Then a firm paw gripped him by the back of his neck. It was the rat, and he was evidently laughing. The mole could feel him laughing, right down his arm and through his paw, and so into his, the mole's, neck. The rat got hold of his skull and shoved it under the mole's arm, and then he did the same by the other side of him, and swimming behind, propelled the helpless animal to shore, hauled him out and set him down on the bank, a squashy, plumpy lump of misery. When the rat had rubbed him down a bit and wrung some of the wet out of him, he said, Now then, old fellow, trot up and down in the towing path as hard as you can till you're warm and dry again, while I dive for the luncheon basket. So the dismal mole, wet without and ashamed within, trotted about till he was fairly dry, while the rat plunged into the water again, and recovering the boat, righted her and made her fast, fetching his floating property down to the shore by degrees, and finally dived successfully for the luncheon basket and struggled to land with it. When all was ready for a start once more, the mole, limp and dejected, took his seat in the stern of the boat as they set off. He said in a low voice, broken with emotion, Ratty, my generous friend, I am very sorry indeed for my foolish and ungrateful conduct. My heart quite fails fails me when I think how I might have lost your beautiful luncheon basket. Indeed, I have been a complete ass, and I know it. Will you overlook this once, and forgive me, and let things go on as before? That's right, bless you, responded the rat cheerfully. What's a little wet to a water rat? I'm more in the water than out of it most days. Don't think any more about it. And look here. I really think you'd better come and stop with me for a little time. It's very plain and rough, you know. Not like Toad's house at all, but you haven't seen that yet. Still, I can make you comfortable and I'll teach you to row and to swim and you'll soon be as handy on the water as any of us are. The mole was so touched by his kind manner of speaking that he could find no voice to answer him and he had to brush away a tear or two with the back of his paw. But the rat kindly looked into an, in another direction, and presently the mole's spirits revived up again, and he was able to give some straight-back talk to a couple of more hens, who were snickering to each other about his bedraggled appearance. When they got home, the rat made a bright fire in the parlour, and planted the mole in an armchair in front of it, having fetched down a dressing gown and slippers for him, and told him river stories till supper time. Very thrilling stories they were too, to an earth-dwelling animal like Mole. Stories about weirs and sudden floods and leaping pike and streamers that flung hard bottles, at least bottles were certainly flung, and from steamers, so presumably by them, and about herons and how particular they were to whom they spoke to, and about adventures down drains and night fishings with otter, 
or excursions far afield with Padger. Supper was a most cheerful meal, but very shortly afterwards, a terribly sleepy mole had to be escorted upstairs by his considerate host to the best bedroom where he soon laid his head on a pillow in great peace and contentment, knowing that his new-found friend, the river, was lapping at the sill of his window. This day was only the first of so many similar ones for the emancipated mole, and each of them longer and fuller and, and fuller of interesting things as the ripening summer moved onwards. He learned to swim and to row and entered into the joy of running water. And with his ear to the reed stems, he caught at intervals something of what the wind went whispering so constantly among them. Okay, we'll take a little break here for a second, and I'll slip back into my normal voice. <laughs> so I'm going to get a breather, have a drink, and I'll be back to you shortly. And you're very welcome to the Can Projects podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature and wellness and if you'd like to get in touch with Cam Projects you can email us us at camprojects.info at gmail.com and please if you can remember to help each other help us all Welcome back. Chapter 2. The Open Road Ratty, said the mole suddenly, one bright summer morning. If you please, I want to ask you a favour. The rat was sitting on the riverbank, singing a little song. He had just composed it himself, and he was very taken up with it, and would not pay proper attention to the mole, or anything else. Since early morning, he had been swimming in the river, in company with his friends, the ducks. And when the ducks stood on their heads, suddenly, as ducks will do, he would dive down and tickle their necks just under where their chins would be if ducks had chins. Till they were forced to come up to the surface again in a hurry, spluttering and angry, and shaking their feathers at him. For it is impossible to say quite all you feel when your head is under water. At least they implored him to go away and attend to his own affairs and leave them to mind theirs. So the rat went away and sat on the riverbank in the sun and made up a song about them, which he calls Duck's Ditty. All along the backwater, through the rushes tall, ducks are dabbing up tails all. Ducks' tails, drakes' tails, yellow feet a quiver, yellow bills all out of sight, busy in the river, slushy green undergrowth. Where the roach swim, here we keep our larder, cool and full and dim. Everyone for what he likes, we like to be heads down, tails up a dabbling free. High up in the blue above, the swift whirls a call, we are down a dabbling, up tails and all. I think very much of that little song, Rat, observed the mole cautiously. He was no poet. He was no poet himself, and didn't care who knew it. And he had a candid nature. Nor do the ducks," replied the rat cheerfully. 
they they say, why can't fellows be allowed to do what they like, when they like, and as they like, instead of other fellows sitting on banks and watching them all the time, making remarks and poetry and things about them? What nonsense it all is. That's what the ducks say. So, so it is, said the mole, with great heartiness. No, it isn't, cried the rat indignantly. Well, then, it isn't, replied the mole soothingly. But what I wanted to ask you was... Won't you take me to call on Mr. Toad? I've heard so much about him, and I do so want to make his acquaintance. Why, certainly, said the good-natured rat, jumping to his feet and dismissing poetry from his mind for today. Get out the boat, and we'll paddle up there at once. It's never the wrong time to call on Toad. Early or late, he's always the same fellow, always good-tempered, always glad to see you, always sorry when you go. He must be a very nice animal, observed the mole as he got into the boat and took the skulls, while the rat settled himself comfortably in the stern. He is indeed the best of animals, replied the rat. So simple, so good-natured, so affectionate. Perhaps he's not very clever. We can't all be geniuses, and it might be that he is both boastful and conceited. But he has got some great qualities, has Toady. Rounding a bend in the river, they came in sight of a handsome, dignified old house of mellowed red brick, with well-kept lawns reaching down to the water's edge. There's Toad's Hall, said the rat. And the creek on the left, where the notice board says private, no landing allowed, leads to his boathouse, and we leave the boat there. The stables are over there to the right. There's a banqueting hall. That's what you're looking at now. Very old, that is. Toad is richer, richer, you know, than any other animal, you know, and... This is really one of the nicest houses in these parts, though he never admitted as much to the toad himself. They glided up the creek, and the mole shipped his skulls as they passed into the shadow of a large boathouse. Here they saw many handsome boats slung from the crossbeams or hauled up on a slip, but none in the water, and the place had an unused and deserted air around it. The rat looked around him. I understand, said he. Boating is played out. He's tired of it and done with it. I wonder what new fad he has taken up now. Come along and let's look him up. We shall hear all about it quite soon enough. They disembarked and strolled across the gay flower-decked lawns in search of Toad, whom they had presently happened upon resting in a wicker golden chair, with a preoccupied expression on his face, and a large mop spread out on his knees. We'll stop there again. We'll pop back into the white room. That's great, Chris. Thanks so much for reading this. What do we expect to come up now in the next little bit? We don't, not too many spoilers, but what's... Well, you see, the Toad is kind of the charismatic character of the bunch. Like, he's... he's, he's uh, They have to kind of bring him to task and kind of stop him from being a bit too enthusiastic about things. The, la- the last part of the book is all about trying to stop the Toad from being a bit of a... Bit of a he's nightmare. an eccentric character. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> hey, yeah. do you know who I loved actually in the in the in the in the, in the uh, David Jason doing uh, the voice of Toad? Actually, yeah, he's the perfect one for that character. That's yeah. you know, like he did Danger Mouse and like he's not he's known he's known for uh, Del Boy, and then he did the more serious stuff like Touch of Frost. But the, some of the kids stuff he did. What did the other one? Count Duckley. That was another yeah, one he, he did. Was Count Duckley. Yeah, he was involved in uh, King Arthur's disasters as well. Which was uh, Rick Moyal was King Arthur in it. Oh, that's a brilliant one! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a yeah. brilliant one. Okay, um, guys, listen, we gotta go. We gotta we gotta shoot because um, I'm just keeping an eye on the time there, and we might have our times mixed up a little bit, Chris. <laughs> so we gotta go. Right, we got to go. So everybody, <laughs> right. listen, keep well, and as we like to say around here, 
help each other, help us all. Yeah, all the best. Welcome to the Calm Projects Podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature, and wellness. And I'm just here with a bit of a spooky update for this October. And to let you know, you all need to stay tuned because we've got some very special puka magic coming in soon. And uh, let me see, I did have my uh, my 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 my, uh, my 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 notes there, my ta- my tales from the script. Um, I haven't. T- don't you mean tales from the crypt? Well, um, well, Chris was supposed to be here with the tales from the script, but I, uh, I haven't seen him around. I'm kind of a bit worried. Uh, I don't know. Because uh, I think I might, I might actually just have a few things to do, actually, because um, it's just kind of feeling a little bit spooky right now. It, it, it is the season. Oh, days are darkening. Good luck, guys. Happy sound. I can feel the barrier between the land of the living and the dead weakening. I can almost make it true. (laughs) Soon you'll hear my tales and stories of the land of the dead nights. (laughs) But not just yet. Soon. On the night of All Hallows' Eve, you will hear from me again. the Can Projects podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature, and wellness. And our saying here is that, and our mission is to help each other, help us all. And if anybody would like to get in contact with Can Projects, you can email us at 
canprojects.info at gmail.com or you can find us over on Twitter at canprojects1. That's C-A-N Projects 1. Welcome back to the Can Projects podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature and wellness. And I'm your host, Shane McKay, and we've got a lovely, lovely show with another reading from Chris Sneed, The Wind of the Willows. Welcome back. The Wind and the Willows by Kenneth Graham. We'll pick up where we left off. Boating is played out. He's tired of it and done with it. I wonder what new fad he's taken up now. Come along, let's look him up. We shall hear all about it quite soon enough. They disembarked and strolled across gay flower-decked lawns in search of Toad, whom they presently happened upon, resting in a wicker garden chair, with a preoccupied expression of face and a large map spread out on his knees. Hooray! he cried, jumping up on seeing them. This is splendid! He shook the paws of both of them warmly, never waiting for an introduction to the mole. How kind of you, he went on, dancing round them. I was just going to send a boat down the river for you, Ratty, with strict orders that you were to be fetched hip here at once. Whatever you were doing, I want you badly, both of you. Now what will you take? Come inside and have something. You don't know how lucky it is you're turning up just now. Let's sit quietly a bit, Toadie, said the rat, throwing himself into an easy chair. Well, the mole took another by the side of him and made some civil remark about Toad's delightful residence. Finest home on the river, cried Toad boisterously. Or anywhere else for that matter, he could not help adding. Here the rat nudged mole. Unfortunately, the toad saw him do it and turned very red. There was a moment's painful silence. Then Toad burst out laughing. All right, Ratty, he said. It's only my way, you know. And it's such... It's not such a very bad home, is it? You know you rather like it yourself. Now look here, let's be sensible. You're the very animals I wanted. You've got to help me, it's most important. Is it about your rowing, I suppose, said the rat, with an innocent air. You're getting on fairly well, though you splash a good bit still, with a great deal of patience and any quantity of coaching you may... Oh, poo boating, interrupted the toad, in great disgust. Silly boyish amusement. I've given that up long ago. Sheer waste of time, that's what it is. It makes me downright sorry to see you fellows who ought to know better spending all your energies in that aimless manner. No, I've discovered the real thing, the only genuine occupation for a lifetime. I propose to devote the remainder of mine to it. I can only regret the wasted years that lie behind me squandered in trivialities. Come at me, dear Ratty, and your amiable friend also, 
It will be so very good. Just as far as the stable's yard, and you shall see what you shall see. He led the way to the stable yard accordingly. The rat followed with a most mistrustful expression. And there, drawn out on the coach house in, into the open, they saw a gypsy caravan shining with newness, painted a canary yellow, picked out with green, its wheels were red. There you are, cried the toad, straddling and expanding himself. There's real life for you, embodied in that little cart. The open road, the dusty highway, the heat, the common, the hedgerows, the rolling downs, camps, villages, towns, cities, here today, up and off to somewhere else tomorrow, travel, change, interest, excitement. The whole world before you, and a horizon that's always changing. And mind, this is the very finest cart of its sort that there ever was built, without any exceptions. Come inside and look at the arrangements. Planned them all myself, I did. The mole was tremendously interested and excited, and followed him up eagerly to the steps. And into the interior of the caravan, the rat only snorted, thrust his hands deep into his pockets, remaining where he was. It was indeed a very compact and comfortable little sleeping bunk. Little sleeping bunks, a little table that folded up against the wall, a cooking stove, lockers, bookshelves, a bird cage with a bird in it, and pots, pans, jugs and kettles of every size and variety. All complete, said the toad triumphantly, pulling open a locker. You see, biscuits, potted lobster, sardines, everything you could possibly want. Soda water, backy there, letter paper, bacon, jam, cards, and dominoes you'll find. He continued as they descended the steps again. You'll find that nothing whatsoever has been forgotten. When we make our start this afternoon. I beg your pardon, said the rat slowly, as he chewed a straw. But I overhear you say something about we, and start, and this afternoon. No, you dear good old ratty, said the toad imploringly. Don't begin talking in that stiff, sniffy way sort of way, because you know you've got to come. I can't possibly manage without you, so please consider it settled and don't argue. It's the one thing I can't stand. You surely don't mean to stick to your dull, fussy old river all your life and just live in a hole in the bank and the boat. I want to show you the world. I'm going to make an animal of you, my boy. I don't care, said the rat doggedly. I'm not coming, and that's flat, and I'm going to stick to my old river and live in a hole and a boat, as I've always done. And what's more, Mole's going to stick to me and do as I do, aren't you, Mole? Of, of course I am, said the Mole loyally. I'll always stick to you, Rat, and what you say is to be, has got to be. All the same, it sounds as if it might have been, well, rather fun. You know, he added wistfully. Poor Mole, the life of adventurous was new, so new a thing to him, and so thrilled was he to explore. And this fresh aspect of it was so tempting that he had fallen in love at first sight with the canary-coloured cart and all its little fit fitments. The rat saw what was passing in his mind and wavered. He hated disappointing people, and he was fond of the Mole and would do almost anything to oblige him. 
Bode was watching both of them very carefully. Come along in and have some lunch, he said diplomatically, and we'll talk it over. We needn't decide anything in a hurry. Of course, I don't really care. I only want to give you, give pleasure to you fellows. Live for others. That's my motto in life. During luncheon, which was an excellent, of course, as everything at Toad Hall always was, the Toad simply let himself go. Disregarding the rat, he proceeded to play upon the inexperienced mole as on a harp. Naturally a voluble animal, and always mastered by his imagination, he painted the prospects of this trip, the joys of the open life and the roadside, in such glowing colours that Mole could hardly sit in his chair for excitement. Okay, we'll take a little break here for a second, and I'll be back to you shortly. And you're very welcome to the Calm Projects podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature, and wellness. And if you'd like to get in touch with Calm Projects, you can email us at calmprojects.info at gmail.com and please if you can remember to help each other help us all welcome back somehow it soon seemed taken for granted by all three of them that the trip was a settled thing and rat though still unconvinced in his mind allowed his good nature to override his personal objections he could not bear to disappoint his two friends who were already deep in schemes and anticipation, planning out each day's separate occupation for several weeks ahead. When they were quite quite ready, the now triumphant toad led his companions to the paddock and set them to capture the old grey horse, who was having being who, without having been consulted, and to his own extreme annoyance, had been told off by Toad for the dustiest job in this dusty expedition. He frankly preferred the paddock and took a deal of catching. Meantime, Toad packed the lockers still tighter with necessities and hung nose bags, nets of onions, bundles of hay and baskets from the bottom of the cart. At last a horse was caught and harnessed and they set off all talking at once. Each animal either trudged by the side of the cart or sitting on the shaft, as the humour took him. It was a golden afternoon. The smell of the dust they kicked up was rich and satisfying. Out of thick orchids on either side of the road, birds called and whistled to them cheerily. Good-natured wayfarers passing them gave them good day, or stopped to say nice things about their beautiful cart, and rabbits sitting at their front doors in the hedgerows held up their forepaws and said, Oh my, oh my, oh my. Late in the evening, tired and happy and miles from home, they drew up in a remote common far from habitation, turned the horse loose to graze and ate their simple supper, sitting on the grass by the side of the cart. Toad talked big about all he was going to do in the days to come, while stars grew fuller and larger all around them, and the yellow moon appearing suddenly and silently from nowhere in particular, came to keep them company and listen to their talk. At last they turned into their little bunks in the cart, and Toad, kicking out his legs sleepily, said, Well, good night to you fellows. This is the real life for a gentleman. Talk about your old river. 
I don't talk about my river, replied replied Rat patiently. You know I don't, Toad. But I think about it, he added pathetically in a lower tone. I think about it all the time. The mole reached out under his blanket, felt for the rat's paw in the darkness and gave it a squeeze. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever you like, Ratty, he whispered. Shall we run away tomorrow morning, quite early, very early, and go back into our old dear hole in the riverside? No, 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 no. We'll see it out, whispered the rat. Thanks awfully, but I ought to stick by Toad till this trip is ended. It wouldn't be safe for him to be left to himself. It won't take very long. His fads never do. Good night. The end was ne indeed nearer than the rat expected. After so much open air and excitement, the toad